has given Earthquake its maximum effort. Starting with a story and screenplay written by George Fox and Mario Puzo, author of The Godfather, Universal has enriched this fascinating drama of interwoven lives with a superb cast. Charlton Heston, Ava Gardner, George Kennedy, Lorne Green, Genevieve Bujold, Richard Roundtree, Marjo Gortner, Barry Sullivan, plus the city of Los Angeles and its millions of people living, loving, planning, fighting until nature's most violent upheaval forces them to battle and claw for life itself. Hey everybody, it's Ben Reiser, here for another episode of 70 Movies We Saw in the 70s. My goodness, it's been too long since last we spoke. Uh, the last episode we did was Texas Chainsaw Massacre, back in time for Halloween. It was? Has, has there one been one then? since then? Hang on. Yeah, you're right. Probably check. Yeah, episode 42 was Texas Chainsaw, and this, so this is episode 43. So we're way over the hump. We're way over the 35 hump. Will you stop at 70? Can you stop? You have to change the name of the podcast. I'm dying to to move past this. And, and even if it just means 80 movies we saw in the 80s or 90. Or 70 more movies we saw in the 70s. 70 more movies we saw in the 70s. You know, at some point this became a, move, a, a podcast about 70s movies that we saw in the 70s. That wasn't actually the original idea. I was imagining every other week doing an Abbott and Costello movie or something, you know, movies right. I saw in the 70s that weren't necessarily from the 70s. Uh, and speaking of, uh, we just passed uh, a sad anniversary, the one year anniversary of our yeah. co-host and friend Mike McPadden, or friend and co-host, that's the better way to say it. Mike McPadden died uh, December something of last year. Um I don't know that I've talked to either one of you guys about it on the podcast, and I don't know if you have anything you want to say, but if you'd want to drop in a, a word or two about Mike. Yeah, I don't like think I ever said anything publicly. Actually, I should, hang on, I should actually introduce the two of you. We're here tonight with the fabulous Healy brothers, Jim and Pat. This is, and this is Jim, and yeah, I just, I, you know, I thought he was a, Mike was just a wonderful guy. I was... You know, we, we, we came very close to meeting in person, and then, you know, the lockdowns happened, and we just, we were only ever acquainted via the internet and Zoom, and uh, so that's, that's something I regret, that we never got a chance to meet in person, but uh, even virtually, he was a wonderful, lovable guy, and Pat did. What, how many, like three or four episodes with him? Oh, yeah, I think so, because we did, um, I what think, two of- as a co-host, as a guest co-host, when uh, when Aaron, of, of, of Crackpot, when Aaron wasn't available. And then I did another one earlier of Robert Mitchum, yeah. But I feel like we maybe have done another one, another too. We did one of Bustin' well, Loose. Well, we did, and well, yeah, Cap. we did Capricorn One. Capricorn One. Oh, right, Capricorn One. So I also never... I had the pleasure of meeting Mike in person, but I was completely in love with the guy. And I, you know, I wasn't even aware of who he was uh, until the pandemic. And Jim hit me to, um, I actually heard Jim's hot stuff episode of of this. Mm-hmm. And then 
became interested in listening to Crackpot, which I then loved. I was like taking a walk every day and hanging out with my friends uh, via my my uh, iPhone and AirPods, and uh, you know, he, his. He, I loved the guy. I, I had spent a lot of time personally with him on the phone, uh, uh, obviously doing the shows and listening to the shows. And now I've become a pretty avid reader of his books as well. And I refer to them a lot. We were just watching something today, thinking about, or last night, thinking about what Mike must have thought of it. Uh, yeah. And then like, and, and, oh, did he write about this one? Yeah, we got to get the book. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's a movie, The Incubus with uh, John Cassavetes from the early eighties. And, and there's a scene in a movie theater where they watch a heavy metal movie starring Bruce Dickinson from Iron Man. And we thought, oh, God, what did Mike write about this? And neither of us had the copy of the book. I think Jim's is at his office and yeah. mine is back at home. Uh, Hang on. I'll grab it right now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Incubus was a movie we as kids joked about a lot we had never seen it we remember vividly the Siskel and Ebert episode where they said that John Cassavetes looked like death warmed over in the movie yeah that stayed with us that was our impression of Cassavetes for a long time yeah you want to hear his uh, write up yes uh, well, it's a heavy metal movie, and the two the two stars the two he has like the what do they call those five pointed? Uh, oh, the uh, pentagrams. The, the pentagrams. Thank you. <laughs> the two pentagrams that make it heavy metal, according to him, are the demon rape. Yes, <laughs> and, lots of that. And, and witchcraft. Uh, during a savage wave of rape murders in small in a small New England town. Local pathologist Dr. John. It's actually Cordell. supposed to be Wisconsin. There's a Wisconsin. Oh, there's a Wisconsin, yeah, a Wisconsin license, license plates. plates. Yeah, but ah. it's shot in Canada somewhere. Yeah, like a Guelph, Ontario. Ah. Anyway, got it. Well, too bad Mike's not around. We could call him out, um, Golden Turkey style on his. Didn't read those Instagram. license plates. Yeah. Uh, Dr. John Cordell, John Cassavetes, repeatedly has to clean red sperm out of female corpses. <laughs> Yes. Lots of it. The word sperm gets mentioned many, many times. More than in, in any other movie, I'm certain. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah, I would say maybe the only movie that ever mentions red sperm. <laughs> yeah. Just sperm. The word sperm is oh, like yeah, every yeah. other word in the movie. <laughs> Cassavetes is always talking about the colossal amounts of sperm that, <laughs> that, that's oh found God. in the victims. Yeah. Meanwhile, his daughter's troubled boyfriend, Tim Duncan McIntosh, suffers visions of hooded torturers laying into bound women. Mm, Are the two does. connected? Has an actor ever had a grosser way with the word ruptured than Cassavetes? <laughs> when Tim worries about whether he might be responsible for the crimes, he ducks into a theater where, lo and behold, new wave of British heavy metal dynamos, Samson, are rocking on stage. Everybody's good head-banging time is harsh when yet another woman is banged to death in the bathroom. As the title suggests, the culprit is actually the incubus a shape-shifting evil force looking to impregnate witches. In a cult spin on the slasher film cycle, the Incubus never quite pushes its repugnant concept to effective cathartic horror or cheap cheeseball thrills. Mostly between fitfully impressive brutality, it's just downbeat and deadening, albeit original. Extra point for Samson's appearance, though it is actually culled from the unfinished film Samson, Biceps of Steel, by Julian Temple. Do you know who mm. that was? Mm. The Incubus introduced the word Incubus to the heavy metal lexicon, leading to a baby boom of over a hundred songs with that title and nearly a dozen bands taking the moniker. Incubus director John 
Hugh, John Howe. Anybody know how you say Oh, Huff. John Huff. John Huff, sorry. Ooh. Yeah. Is also a Hammer Horror vet, 1971's Twins of Evil, who also made The Legend of Hell House and brought post-Fantasia metal to Disney movies in the form of Escape to Witch Mountain and Return from Witch Mountain. There you go. Uh, completely accurate. I think right I liked on. it a little more than Mike did, but... Uh, yeah. It's, uh, he, I think he's right on. Yeah. Well, God bless you, Mike. Bless Mike. So, um, uh, I, I, I sort of, st- I brought up McPadden because I was thinking today that the week that he died, we were, we had uh, a show booked to record. We were going to do, um, uh, the Poseidon Adventure in time for mm-hmm. New Year's Eve with our friends, Alan Broadman and uh, Chad Polari. Um, and we had actually booked it. And we're supposed to do it the week before, and then Mike got busy with something, and um, so we pushed it back, and then we never got to do it, and I, we still haven't done it. Um, and I sort of forgot about that until I realized, oh yeah, we're doing Earthquake, and it's a disaster movie, and it's right in time for Christmas slash New Year's. Uh, oh, so we're doing Earthquake. Well, as everyone knows, because you've seen whatever I put up here, and you've read the title of the podcast. Uh, Earthquake... Uh, 1974, Mark Robeson, uh, Charlton Heston, Jean Viev, or is somebody, somebody somewhere, oh, I think it's on the, tra- I watched the trailer. I got the Shout Factory Blu-ray. Is that the one you have, uh, Jim? Oh, we, no, one? we just, we had the original Universal release, yeah. which is just the movie. I have that one as well. Yeah, the Shout Factory has the TV version, which I'm, I'm going to talk about at some point, and the theatrical version, and a bunch of pretty good extras but they're all on the disc that has the tv version which i didn't realize for a while i was like what kind of junk extras are on this thing and then i was like oh no they're all on the other disc with the tv version uh but in the trailer i the the, the guy whoever the announcer is says genevieve he, he pronounces genevieve's name genevieve maybe oh it's not even genevieve which i would have made sense it was something that I'd ne- i've never heard before and i don't think is correct um yeah <laughs> Somebody should write a book or something, an article about all the trailers that the that the voiceover narrator mispronounces actors' names or other things. Uh, but I, this is my disaster movie. Um, this is the one I, 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 I've, I've told the story a couple times about my grandparents taking me to see Towering Inferno, which would have been before this. No, no, no. Yeah, just before. It came out a month before. Did it, or did it? Yeah. Come? I thought they. I thought the big thing was Universal was proud that they beat Towering yes. Inferno. Yeah. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Oh, that's what I meant. Earthquake yeah. came. Yeah. It was right. Air- Airport seventy five came out in October of seventy four. Earthquake was November, and Towering Inferno was out just in time for Christmas. Okay, so then I might. I probably saw this. I can't. I'm. I'm trying to figure out. It's weird because obviously all these things were before I saw. It. Jaws, um, and but Jaws is the movie that I think of everything before and everything after, and going to see Jaws with my father, and it being a real big deal. Like I couldn't believe he was actually going to take me to see it, and it was a packed theater, and we were just—I was totally freaked out. I mean, when the, the you know the what I think is still the biggest sort of jump scare in Jaws, although I guess that's arguable as the the sort of the head the head coming ben, out of Ben Gardner on his boat. Ben Gardner. I don't think anybody could disagree with that. Yeah. Still works. Well, even if you've seen it twenty times, what about when he's shoveling the chum? That's another pretty good one. That's good, but no, no Ben Gardner's head is always, always, still makes me jump. Yeah, 
because of the way it's cut and you know, just for some reason you just never know exactly. Your eyes cut. are directed to another part of the screen, but you're not looking where it is. Yeah. So it's it's surprising to me to think that I saw Earthquake before I saw Jaws, but I must have uh, because I know I saw it in Sense Around. I know that was a big deal, and I, I'm assuming my dad took me to see it instead. But it it didn't it wasn't the sort of like I can't believe I'm getting to see this. Um, and I wonder, Earthquake was probably still out when, when Towering Inferno was released, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, movies would play in Airport 75. That's why it was called 75, because they knew it would play well into the next I was going to ask, because, it, again, it, wasn't, it yeah. wasn't until today when I was doing some research, and I was like, oh, these dopey airport movies are not the year that they came out. They're like the next yeah, year. The, the year same thing true with 77 and 79? Yeah. Is that the same No, case? no, no. Those were released in 77 and 79. But oh. you know, early enough in the year where I guess you know, they figured it would, it would be playing well. Enough. And, and, that's, and they would. I mean, Earthquake yeah. and Towering Inferno were the number three and number one movies that, uh, you know, number, number three and number one grossing films that were released in 74. And you know, they. I'm, I'm sure at any point in 1975, you could find a theater playing either one of those movies, even after Jaws came out. I'm but sure. do you think at any point in 75, I could have seen Earthquake in Censorround? Mm, probably. Why not? I'm sure. I mean, did debris fall on your head by any chance? No, I wish. Um, no such luck. True well, Censorround, as they call it. Yeah. I, I, I don't, nobody else is around to tell me stuff that I can't remember, so I don't know what the No, I'm sure you was. could. I'm sure you could find a sense around theater several months after it was it was playing. Okay. Well, I saw Earthquake in a theater. I saw Jaws in a theater. I saw the first 20 minutes of Towering Inferno, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, but I know when the when the first victim, there's a guy who sort of comes out of, I think, an elevator, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After like up the until dam. then, I think my grandmother had my her hand over my no, eyes. No, in Towering Inferno. He's oh, there. Inferno. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 But both um, movies, the first guy, the person that dies, just comes out of an elevator. That's yeah. a great point, and and I think still one of the most disturbing parts of Earthquake is the uh, is that first elevator drowning. The guy yeah. drowns yeah. in an yeah, elevator. It is disturbing. Not only not only do I feel bad for that guy, but the uh, whoever the character is who then sticks around for the rest of the movie, who finds right. him, his partner, he lets out such a weird kind of mewling noise when he's listening to that guy's heartbeat it's very yeah. sad and pathetic and like not at all manly or you know what you would expect from a, a dam worker and both uh, movies it's like you know much tragedy occurs because somebody violates building codes yes yeah yeah although in towering inferno that's the central problem and in an earthquake yeah. it's just one of the many fucked up many, things that yeah, happens one of many problems that la's got going on yeah, LA is pro- apparently got a what is it a phosgene phosgene gas? I don't. I've never. I oh I, that I like those that clouds up. of green gas that are floating. They're over coming the city out of all the, the vents, and everyone's yeah. panicked about, and they're passing out and getting poisoned by. What I mean, it that? doesn't look that much different from what LA looks like now post COVID. <laughs> Honestly, the last time I left saw it in October. Yeah, uh, but anyway, so after that. In Towering Inferno, my my grandparents were like, "That's enough," and they took me out. Oh, you know, they, and it they was, yanked you out. You would have stayed. I would have stayed. I wasn't bothered by it, but I was, you know, and and especially since I had either seen Earthquake or was about seen Earthquake, have seen Earthquake, and I can't remember if I would have seen. 
um, Blazing Saddles by then. But anyway, I was, you know, it didn't bo- it didn't really bother me, but it was probably, was certainly, it was certainly at that point the most inappropriate movie that my grandparents had taken me to see. And I think they, they were in a panic that they had taken me to the wrong thing. I'll tell you, the movie that we stuck all the way through, but I don't think they ever got over, was they took me to see George Siegel in The Blackbird. <laughs> which oh is all kinds of fucked up. <laughs> yeah, I saw that at the New Beverly a few years ago, and that was like in, in an audience full of people. The the, the racist content in that movie is very uncomfortable. Yeah, I still yeah. have never seen it. Oh wow! Well, we need to do that. Um, but yeah, and my grandparents would have been especially attuned to that. You know, they were like New York liberal socialist soapbox communist party everything they would have just been yeah they were just you know that's and there's quite all this sort of shocking when you see it now i mean i i may have seen it as a kid but i saw it as an adult and i was like whoa there's a there's something with a short uh, a little person right like there's uh, a felix silla cousin it from uh and he plays a nazi right he's a nazi person, there's lots of small nazi person nazi yeah. yeah yeah great movie yeah. And I think I think George Siegel as Sam Spade Jr. Uh, looks in a window and overwatch over you know through the portal of a window of a ship sees Felix Felix Silla engaged in a, like some sort of sexual act with like a couple of regular sized women. If, I, if I'm yeah. not mistaken, yeah, yeah, right. I and I, I, I don't. Do you remember what year that film is from? That's seventy five. Seventy five. Yeah. Oh, okay. So that, right and that was I read that right after I saw it that it came out on Christmas Day, seventy five. <laughs> of some pe- certain people's Christmas upset. So, but we, but my dad and I made it all the way through Earthquake, and I, you know, I was I was totally into it, and and I think it still is my disaster movie. Like out of all the seventies, and I saw seventy Airport seventy five and theater in seventy seven, and I I agree with you. Yeah, I, I think it's just about the best. I think Poseidon Adventure has a little more polish. It's maybe a better looking film, and 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 I like Poseidon Adventure quite a bit. But somehow, some for some reason, I prefer Earthquake. It's uh, there's something there's something a little more real about it, and fun and fun too. Yeah, yeah. So let's uh, let's get into it. Um... It starts off, at least for real, in the theatrical version with uh, some helicopter shots of uh, of L.A. Um, and uh, this uh, John Williams score, which you know, I don't know. Does any do either of you feel that John Williams has ever done less than a less than a good to great score for any no. movie? No, no, even one that's just totally serviceable is great. I mean, it always like makes the movie better. I mean, he did the score for Heartbeeps, and it's fantastic. <laughs> you know, it's cause... He gave that movie its heartbeep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and this is pretty. You know, this is he did this pre Jaws. Mm-hmm. So this is an early. I think he had just done Sugarland Express. Yeah. Yeah. He did. He did. I read he did. Um, Long goodbye. He did uh, Towering Inferno and Earthquake back to back in the summer of '74. Right, and I and I watched one of the featurettes and the Shout Factory thing is a conversation with somebody I don't even remember who he is, but he does a long talk about John Williams and about this score. And um, 
Uh, he he did talk about the fact that John Williams was was somebody who paid close attention to trends in in film scores and you know was interested in what people were doing. And I will say that I love this score. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. There isn't that much of it. No, not a lot to, of music. Not a lot of music. And and something that he and Mark Robeson talked about a lot was the fact that Robeson knew that there was no need for any score during the actual earthquake scenes. Like that there's enough, you know, there's going to be the sense around yeah. there's all that stuff. You don't need it. So, and I think Williams was totally into that idea. And so you don't, you know, it's more like you hear some love themes and I will say that it's maybe one of his most TV mystery of the week sounding uh, mm-hmm. scores because there's some in that main theme there's like some drums and it gets a little like funky which reminds me a lot of like the stuff that you would hear you know on Columbo and yeah and the know, movie looks like one of the universal TV shows like Columbo or uh, you know McMillan Wife or Definitely. some of those things yeah Universal and, and, Factory Rock right. Files and, and I think that this I think it's fun to look at this movie as this transitional moment of, you know, in all kinds of transitions, it's this, it feels like it's this transition from like sixties and fifties, classical Hollywood studio stuff into like the seventies and the sort of, you know, uh, you know, all the stuff that the seventies brought out all those, all yeah, the, and the, in, the, in television and in movies, it's definitely, there's like a lot of universal films of the, of the seventies. There's, you know they're 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 using the same kind of factory style that they were using on their TV shows, you know, in movies. You know, their Spielberg's movies are definitely an exception. I don't think Sugarland Express or Jaws ever look like a Universal TV show. No, the other sort of disaster disaster adjacent movie that this one reminds me of those. Maybe it's why I like it so much because I love this other one so much too. Is Two Minute Warning. Right, because you know, they both have mm-hmm. Heston, but they both have those sort of helicopter shots of L.A. and there's the, the same, you know, that's a Williams score too, right? Uh, no, two minute warning. Jerry sure. Fielding. Jerry Fielding, maybe. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Oh, okay. Right. Somebody, it's not Williams. I mean, that's okay. a, I don't know, that's a superior movie, but it's, I don't know, not exactly a disaster movie. Well, yeah, what's no. most interesting about it is how how it breaks from. What what Universal probably expected to be a disaster movie, right? Just like a, you know, an all star cast, mm-hmm. and um, and it's it, yeah, it's it's just uh, yeah. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't put it in the class with these other films soon if I had to, you know, if it were, I'd probably say that's probably the best disaster yeah. movie of the seventies. Yeah, but it's interesting as to what gets categorized as disaster movies depending on when people are talking about these things and who's talking about them. Like I was reading right. the New York Times review for Earthquake written by somebody who I didn't never have even seen her byline in the times before. Um, who is it? Nora Sayer, S A Y R E. No, it's not a bad review, but she brings up what she calls the much superior juggernaut, which mm-hmm. I, I agree. That's a great movie too. But again, that's not, I don't really think that that's a disaster movie. Well, it's strange because I, mean, I, I was thinking, oh, well, it's natural disasters, but no, Towering Inferno is not a natural disaster. So, Roller Coaster is probably a disaster movie to a certain degree, but it doesn't have the cat, the all-star cast of characters that, I mean, kind of like 
But Juggernaut and Roller Coaster. Love Boat is like a disaster movie without a disaster. It's like the way it's cast and the way it is and everything, the way the setup. It's just that nothing terrible happens. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, Juggernaut and and Roller Coaster both have this sort of what became, you know, in in that, if you're calling those movies disaster movies. Yeah, yeah, they're mad bombers. You you have to talk about Speed and Speed 2 being disaster movies. Then everything is a disaster movie. (laughs) Right. You know, then we're just die hard. Yeah. Well, Die Hard is, you know, certainly, yeah, I mean, modeled after, I think Towering Inferno is a kind of touchstone for, for that movie. And it, that, and then, you know, then you have movies like uh, Taking a Pelham 1, 2, 3, which you talked about, you know, which c- could be, but it's like, hey, you got to draw the line somewhere. I don't know exactly what the line is, but it seems to be we can agree that Earthquake, Poseidon Adventure, Towering Inferno. The airport movies. Airport. The Swarm, maybe. Yes. Irwin Allen. Right. But but Airport, the first Airport, the, right. even that one is... Is a Mad Bomber movie. Yeah, it's more of a Bad Bomber movie than an actual disaster movie. Yeah. Yeah, but it has the classic, you know, it has the multi-storylines and the, you know, um, the, and the all-star cast and c- cutting in between the sections of the film that, you know, are taking place in different locations and... Okay. Big big stars who never meet each other and right on screen anyway. Very little time spent in the actual airport, ironically. And the presence of George Kennedy. Yes. So maybe it's the maybe if we're trying to figure it out, maybe it's the, maybe having the all star cast and the multiple storylines is a key component of being able to actually call something a disaster movie. Yeah, and you know, and because I guess like, or not would qualify and taking right. a Pelham and right. But like Black Irwin Sunday, when Black time Sunday ends with a pretty big disaster, but it's not yeah. a disaster movie. Well, yeah, you because know, you're really with, you're really only cutting back and forth between Robert Shaw and Bruce Dern's stories. And the disaster is at the end of the movie rather than being either the beginning or the center of the movie. Yeah, and and, and it's and like a lot of these movies, it's it's a disaster averted story. It's you know, mm-hmm. right. But two minute warning to me feels like, although I don't call it a disaster movie, it feels like it ticks off most, if not all, of the boxes. Yeah, and it's yeah. truly a. Di- I mean, it it is not a disaster averted. It's a really tragic situation. So, yeah, including some of the most amazing kind of crowd out of control scenes. Yeah, scenes. Stuff's breathtaking. Yeah, which like is an element of earthquake that the when the, when the people get out of control, you know, whether it's pushing each other out of elevators or uh, you know the national guardsmen, a power run amok thing. Yeah. You know that happens. Then again, it it's the movie feels like an allegory for just what has happened in Los Angeles in general over time. Yeah, and it's a real downer. Mm-hmm. Is, yeah. is it? Yeah. Is it the most sort of downbeat of the seventies? Does if, yeah. if you don't if count, you don't count two, two minute warning, yeah. yeah, right. This 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 used to be a hell of a town, officer. <laughs> yeah, it's very very apocalyptic. Yeah, the, and it ends with George Kennedy crying, and Charlton right. Heston, com, you know, completely sacrificing himself. Yeah, for someone for someone he doesn't care about. Yeah, you think? Isn't there like a similarly sort of gloomy last line to two minute warning doesn't have something or like that. I, I just remember martin balsam just sitting on the steps there and just being utterly destroyed and yeah. then like helicopter shot coming out there's almost a feeling of like you know well oh, this is this is the modern age even though it's what 10 years after charles whitman you know the idea that 
you know, there's there's a feeling that uh, we've you know we've crossed the threshold here. That's not going to be good. All right. Well, I'm going to try to read, um, if not all of this, uh, Wiki, uh, Wikipedia synopsis. plot synopsis, and we can and so we can will hopefully give us opportunities to jump in and talk about different cast members, where they were, what they were doing, and of course the right. crew. I mean, I, I we have to talk about Albert Whitlock. I always love talking about the person I found out was an actual person, Jennings Lang. Uh, yeah. The fact that Mario Puzo wrote the first draft of this thing. Yeah. Uh, Mark Robeson, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so early one morning, an earthquake jolts the Los Angeles metro area. On his way to work, former USC football player Stuart Graff, having just fought with his wife Remy, visits Denise Marshall, an actress who is the widow of one of his friends and co-workers, he drops off an autographed football for her son, Corey, and helps Denise rehearse her lines for a scene she's shooting later that day. Second okay, time so- Heston's played a football player, right? Because after number one, or number is there one. another? I thought maybe he had played himself in college, but he was just a, he was just a, a drama student at Northwestern. Does, does Heston survive any of his late 60s, early 70s movies? I guess he's Airport, alive Airport, seven, Airport 75, he's okay at the end. Uh, Soylent Green, he's a screaming madman at the end, but he's he makes it. He makes it through the first Planet of the Apes, but right. it make dies in the second. <laughs> yeah, Spoiler the alert! Second one. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and uh, Omega Man, he's gone. He's gone. Yeah, it's gone in that one. Yeah, I, it was two minute warning. Made... He makes it. Oh yeah, yes he does. And his oh. toupee makes it as well. <laughs> His toupee uh, is actually different in the TV version of Two Minute Warning. He's got a different toupee on. You mean the scenes he shot for the TV yes. version? Yes. Oh. <laughs> it's amazing that he agreed to that, uh, yeah. to shoot any of that stuff. I know. Uh, I'm sure money uh, was Is involved. Heston, I always think of, I always think Heston's being carted off to become Soylent Green at the end of Soylent Green. Well, or, you know, whatever the conspiracy is, if he knows the secret, are they going to let, you know, is he going to be, are they going to let him out? You know, I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure they'll make him into uh, those little green crackers. Hmm. So his wife, uh, Remy, is Ava Gardner. Um in a role that seems to be written for a woman in her 30s, but is played by 50, a woman in her 50s who 52-year-old Ava Gardner. looks like she's in her 70s. How old is Heston at the time of this movie? Oh, good question. Probably around the same. I know Lauren Green is playing her father is only eight years older than her. Right, right. Um, or seven years old. Charlton Heston was born in 1923, so he would have been he's 50. A year, he's a year younger than Ava Gardner. But it, it's like written as if she he like married the trophy daughter of his boss and, you know, she needs looking after by her daddy rather than this beyond mature woman who's like the same age as him. Well, something I read, I can't remember, it might be in Wikipedia or something else, talked about the sort of plot elements that were edited out of this. And it was that their, their argument... Is if there's a very blunt cut. They're like, she's got maybe the best line in the movie when she says, uh, how dare you lower your voice to me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then, but then that scene cuts really in the middle of their argument. And then you cut to Heston getting dressed and then discovering that she has OD'd or at least pretended to OD. Right. Um, uh, and 
and I read that they, you know, that they that they felt like the beginning was too long, so they cut a bunch of that stuff. And then, but what is interesting to me is that sort of blunt cut that makes you feel like you're missing something that you shouldn't have been missing uh, happens two more times in the movie. And then the third one, I feel like, is the payoff. Like, it's like, oh, that's a pretty good cut. Like, this happens again when Heston and uh, Jean-Vierre Bougeol uh, are drinking wine, and then it's sort of a, a really choppy cut to post-coital uh, And they're both fully dressed. Right. And he's yeah. laying on the bed uh, ver- uh, horizontally with his pants totally buckled up, but his shirt undone. His shirt undone, in. but tucked into his pants. <laughs> and she's totally dressed. So... And you only what know that happening? they had sex because she says, when we made love, you did it so violently. I forgot, and I even forgot until just now, that this is another Charlton Heston shirtless movie uh, from, the, yeah. from the 60s mm-hmm. and 70s. That guy yeah. needed to have his shirt off in every movie for some reason. This might be the last one. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, they, uh, well, there was, so, but there was, a, there, was a, there was a scene that was cut out where we meet Lloyd Nolan, who shows up later in the hospital. After her attempted suicide, he shows up and reveals to Heston, I guess he accidentally, that what he thought was Ava Gardner's miscarriage a couple right. years earlier, when she was 50, right. uh, <laughs> uh, Oops. was, An in fact, her abortion. And that was that's the reason why they're, they're having their their big spat at the moment because she lied to him and you know yes and that's what i mean about it i think they cut out the abortion thing because they got a 50 some year old woman that just seems like an unrealistic yeah well and 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 lloyd nolan is the doctor who performs abortions in mark robeson's peyton place yes Ah. so he's just typecast by that guy yeah well, speaking of this sort of transitional moment, like so Ava Gardner, you know, in a movie that doesn't doesn't sort of do the sort of gauzy glamour shots, she does get one towards the end of the movie. Uh, I think it, Heston's at the rescue center and he um, he sees Jean-Vierre Bougeot first and hugs her and then realizes that Ava Gardner's there too and you cut to mm-hmm. her and it's this beautifully lit Thing and she's got the filter and everything. Hmm. Um, uh, th- those there's there's that moment. I can't think of another sort of glamour shot in the movie like that. Um, but the thing that I enjoy is that there's some of the cast, maybe a third, maybe a little less than a third, are doing that. They're still doing that mid Atlantic, transatlantic accent. Yeah, she oh, does. Yeah. Hers is really weird. She's like, I can't believe, like, yeah. yeah Lloyd Nolan and, does it a little bit too. Lloyd Nolan does it a little bit, and also um, Barry Sullivan. Barry, Barry Sullivan, Sullivan yeah, does yeah. it, and I Big feel time. like John Randolph is doing it too. Yeah, maybe they all sound like Barbara Stanwyck. Barry Sullivan has that scene where it looks like he's trying to decide if he's going to eat his glasses or not while he <laughs> ponders uh, whether what to, how to warn people. But also, who's the guy who puts George Kennedy on suspension? Is that George Murdoch? Oh, who is that? Oh, guy? maybe Who's that the is. captain or the lieutenant or whoever the hell. Kind of heavy set guy. Yeah, he's yeah, doing might... it. Yeah. Hmm. Huh. I think that's. Am I wrong? Is that guy not? George yeah, you Murdoch? might be right. 
I didn't notice last night. Um. So anyway, uh, so 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 yeah, so Jean-Vier Bujol is the younger love interest. I don't know how old was this one of Jean-Vier Bujol's first films. She was, I think. No, she had done several uh, Canadian films because she's Quebecoise. Mm. Uh, and then she did an Alan René film in the mid-60s. Um, mm. And uh, and then in 69, Universal put her in Anne of the Thousand Days, where she played Anne Boleyn to Richard Burton's Henry VIII, and she got an Oscar nomination. So she was already, you know... She You're was, right. She'd been around for at least 10 years. Yeah. And she's one of... Several uh, of the cast members who are Canadian, her, she, uh, Lauren Green, Donald Moffat. I think there was one more too, right? And Mark Mark Robeson is himself from Montreal, so mm. supporting his his fellow Canucks. That's good. Um, I'm looking here. It says Jean-Vierre Bujold, who usually has a an accent or a reverse accent, and the second to last E of her name is not the accent isn't on there so maybe that is what led to the mispronunciation of the uh, yeah or maybe they had decided at at some point that this is this is what we're going to call you you know this is this is this is the definitive and maybe that's what they've been calling Genevieve or something like that Genevieve would be the right the French yeah pronunciation I think he splits the difference between some sort of American idea. Yeah, it. Maybe it is. Maybe that is how you say it. Who knows? Hmm. Hmm. Uh, the th- I l- I've always enjoyed the scene where um, they're getting ready to read to rehearse her lines. But it wasn't until watching it again this week that I looked a little more closely at the script that Heston's holding. Yeah. And I'm convinced right now that it, he's actually holding the earthquake script and he's got it open <laughs> to the scene that they're doing. Because sure there's is. a huge monologue in the middle of that page and, it, and she's talking, you know, she's doing a monologue about what the movie's about. And I'm yeah. like, this fucker's got this script open. <laughs> and yeah. He's probably reading his lines right off of that page. And they only read those that one line right yeah 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 uh so that's that's a nice easter egg that's not this you heard it here first for me they're they're, they actually got this the earthquake script and it was cool because she's supposed to be shooting a movie and she's right there at universal studios so she doesn't have far to go (laughs) (laughs) to go to work right on the back line (laughs) yeah 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 i love uh i love that we get heston not only jogging but then he's home and he's got that 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 thing on his wall where he's like Whatever those oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Pulling the yeah. things in. And, but, and I don't even understand what, and, and, you know, the first line of the movie is really Ava Gardner going, God damn it. And you don't even know what she's complaining about. You know, she yeah. just sort of walks into the room and it seems like she's supposed to trip over something, but she doesn't actually trip over anything. And I don't well, know. Well, and then he makes a point. He, he makes a point that that was the last thing they said before yeah. they went to, to <laughs> right. bed the night before. And so what? that's what? like, that's. Don't you? Yeah. And then, right. and then uh, something about drinks, and he says, "I didn't realize you were a clock watcher." And then she—that's when she says, "Don't you ever lower your voice to me." How yeah. dare you lower your voice to that's me? That's pretty good. That's pretty good dialogue. It is pretty good dialogue, and that bums me out that they didn't leave the rest of that scene in because I'm like, I like where this is going. Is oh, it in yeah. the TV cut? No, no, that's the thing, right? So none frustrating. Of the, none right. of the things that were cut off of the theatrical version made it into the TV version, but they shot. 
40 minutes of new stuff. They probably lost. I mean, they probably threw that shit in the garbage when they cut it out. Well, and I sat through this 20 minutes of garbage. And I remember, I know I must have seen the TV version because I vividly remember having already seen this airplane stuff. And there's terrible, there's a lot of terrible airplane footage. Most of the 20 minutes is a couple on an airplane talking about Charlton Heston and arguing about what they're doing and it's they're like newlyweds or something they just figured they had like a a, an airplane set and they were just like this will be easy we can put this into a three-hour slot we watched it on television for the first time right i'm pretty that's how i first saw it yeah yeah Yeah, and i think i vaguely remember that stuff and uh but there's a go sorry go ahead ben well then there's an intern but but i do remember being like I remember liking the one part of the airplane plot where they're trying to land in the middle of the earthquake. And I was like, oh, this is pretty cool that the runway is breaking up right in front of them. And and they actually use that as the cliffhanger for the... Because what they did, the reason there is padded footage is not because they had to cut a bunch of stuff out, but because they were stretching it to a two-night event. They had right. it like ah. consecutive Sunday nights. And they end the first Sunday night in the middle of the airplane runway scene where the airplane is trying to land and then the, the woman from the, all those scenes puts her hands over her face and they're like stay tuned for next sunday night when you get to see whether this woman's about to die or not that's probably why they did it so they yeah. could have a good cliffhanger These tv versions are so interesting like I, I was watching the diary of a mad housewife blu-ray recently and they talk about the tv version which also has 20 minutes of footage that they shot just for the tv version wow. because there's so much in the movie that, that they, they can't show, show. Yeah. And some people got to know these movies that way. So like, wh- like for example, Psycho was a movie I saw many times on TV. And the version on, of television, on television of Psycho is Marion Crane leaves Phoenix and she shows up at the Bates Motel. There isn't any of that stuff where she right. goes to another town. She switches cars, even though it's a different car. Like yeah. the cop pulls her over. And I always think of that stuff as being like, it's like a director's cut or something. Because I just, I'm getting you know knowing that movie so well without that stuff in it i always think that's like oh padding or something even though that's the original well, movie well yeah and they used to the abbott and costello movies that i grew up on on channel 11 in new york were all cut for time because they were they would put them into 90 minute time slots with commercials oh, yeah and, and so it wasn't until you know DVDs came out of those movies that I got to see. They would mostly just hack off the opening bit of those movies, which right. were usually not plot related. Yeah. So, like, I saw the first five or ten minutes of uh, like the dozens of Abner Costello movies for the first time in the last twenty years. Well, I remember Planet of the Apes, yeah. which was like in the ninety minutes. Channel, Channel Seven WLS in Chicago had a three thirty movie, and they had right. to be over by five for the. But then they just turn it into two parts and three parts. Sometimes they did, but they, they once a year they would do Go Bananas Week, and they'd show all five Planet of the Apes films. Ah. And you have an hour and a half. You have a you have a hundred and ten minute movie. You got to cut down to probably seventy five or seventy. Yeah, like he's already on the planet. He, of the he, he cra- at the beginning. He, no, he's. It, I think it. You see him on the rocket or at the beginning or yeah. You might be right. I, I don't even it, remember seeing it's that like, rocket it, stuff. It, so it, it, immediately he gets captured by the. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's there's no there's zero build up. Still worked. Yeah. 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 That, that movie's un, unstoppable. You can do whatever you want to it. Show it backwards. It works great. Um, and then, and then I want to say the only one of these uh, canon disaster films uh, uh, that we saw in the seventies in the theater was 
Airport 77, which yeah, Pat and I driving. saw at a drive-in in 78. And uh, a second half of a double bill with foul play. And that I saw several times on television uh, in the years after. And it was, and it's, it's much, much longer. It's got a ton more footage, m- more subplots, uh, the blind piano player, uh, there's, there's a lot more of him nowadays. They just they just have they literally have you know twice as many commercials now. Yeah, that is no problem with they don't need to stretch it out. But and then I got used to that version, and then when I saw the when I saw the theatrical cut again, it felt felt much more abrupt. But mm-hmm. it's, mm. I'm sure it's a better movie. <laughs> and Airport 77 is the underwater one, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Underwater, but also underwater because it's an art heist, art heist in yeah. midair, and they try and blow it up and they're going to steal the art once they sink it but they sink it in the Bermuda Triangle where no one can find right. it and knows where they are which is what NBC turned two, two minute warning into a, a, a sniper yeah. movie and an art heist movie yeah yeah, yeah it's yeah. Jimmy Stewart's priceless art collection that he's right in airport so much. I can't remember is the TV footage of two minute warning on the blu-ray yes it's mm-hmm. a, the whole cut is on there mm. um, but they they didn't do like what they did with the earthquake and just make all of the you can just watch the the extra scenes in one in one city instead of watching the whole movie and figuring out what what the new scenes are what i i want to talk about some of the additional tv footage in earthquake in a second but just remind airport 75 that's the hole in the cockpit how does that happen yes, yes. dana andrews has a heart attack flying his twin engine oh plane, and he crashes and he into, crashes into oh. the uh into the what is it a 747 or yeah. it's a giant it's a jumbo jet and he should and it, go to sleep but he's like insists on going home yeah and it, and the whole i think sucks the whole cockpit crew out <laughs> dana andrews made a lot of airline disaster movies yeah he did zero hour he's in oh. what's that one the the big sky or what is that oh uh not the big sky uh the he's not in um high and the mighty no, it's called like the, not the big sky, but the tall sky or something like mm. that. He did several of them. I'll look it up. King of the Airport Disaster Movies. And Dean Martin's in the first one, right? First Airport. Yeah. Dean Martin, Burt Lancaster. Van Heflin is the Mad Bomber. And uh, yeah, Charlton Heston is the is the ground, whatever. He's, he's on the ground in Airport 75. And uh, Karen Black is his flight attendant girlfriend who who uh ends up having to fly the plane right until until he's able to get i think flown into the hole in, in the side of the plane what's the what did you already mention what's the what's the other mad bomber airplane movie that precedes air the crowded sky that's the other day mm. mad bomber airline movie uh i don't know the crowded sky is a disaster movie about a navy jet and a commercial airliner headed for a mid-air collision ben what's the um what's the uh cy enfield movie with richard attenborough that we showed at the cinema yes that's the one i'm thinking stanley baker oh that's uh Uh, your number uh what is that uh no no that's you're uh, thinking that's uh the night the night my number came up that's a different film no this is um uh Cy Enfield, it's like Thunderbolt or something like that. Jetstorm st- jet or Jetstream. Jet very good, very good movie. Yes, right, and that's that's got a lot to a lot in common with Airport. Yes, and it's much more scaled down. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking of. 
Okay. Uh, back to back to earthquake. Um, oh, let me just finish my thought about those blunt cuts. So there's those two uh, that both involve Heston and his women, but I think there's a rhyming cut that I feel like I feel like they made those first two. I think I think the Jean Bujol Heston thing is also like they c- took out some of that scene. Like I feel like there must have been more of them drinking and or having sex. Um, and neither one, and both of those feel weird to me, at least watching it this week. I don't ever remember feeling how much it feels like they chopped out a scene until now, but there's a third one late in the movie after George Kennedy has it out with, um, with, uh, Marjo Gortner. Um, and he, he also seems like he's in the middle of a, I mean, after he kills him. Yeah. After he kills him, (laughs) uh, He's he's talking to Victoria Principal, and then there's another like blunt cut to them in the car, and she's sort of trying to calm down in the passenger seat of the car. The puppy. Yes, exactly. And I think that that's a nice cut. And I'm like, okay, I almost forgive these first two cuts because they kind of made it this thing that happens throughout the movie where you get this weird cut, and this one works. Mm. Uh, But speaking of Victoria Principal and Marjo Gortner. Other than this air, airplane crap that they shot for TV, the biggest sequ- well, there's two other big sequences. One of them is this endless scene of Victoria Principal in her apartment changing into her Miles uh, T-shirt and Marjo Gortner standing outside the window watching her and then actually knocking on the door and telling her he's there to protect her. He's, you know part of the national guard and she actually invites him to go see a movie even though she already thinks he's a total creep it's a it's an endless scene but seems to Wait, exist it, mostly to either it's pad before out the, t- the earthquake yeah it's before he, she goes to the uh yeah yeah it's, well, it's that's stupid because when he sees her he talks to her about just knowing her from the grocery store he doesn't know her in any other way he talks about how, oh my coming to the store well it's also stupid because in the theatrical cut at the end when he's about to rape her, most of it is because she takes off or he pulls off her leather coat and sees the thing. And he's like, only a slut would wear a shirt like that. Yes. Like he's seeing her like that for the first time. But in the TV cut, he's staring at her, put taking on and off this t-shirt for like 20 minutes. He already knows exactly what she's dressed like. I mean, not that I don't want to see that, but that's right. stupid. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's really stupid. And, and I can't believe I almost don't believe that it was shot two years later, that Victoria Principal and Marjorie Gortner came back two years later and shot that whole thing. Well, they certainly, like, everybody in that part of the movie is wearing a crazy wig, so it wouldn't have been hard to, like, just put the wig on and make it look like you were, yeah. you know, two years earlier. I mean, he's yeah, wearing yeah. a wig on top of a wig. and Well, also, uh, Jesse Vint, who's one of his tormentors, is wearing a really ridiculous wig, too. And the He's other, wearing like the same wig that Waldo Matthau was wearing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's also somebody dressed exactly like Walter Matthau in yes. the in the rescue they, center at the end. Doing they want to make you think that he's still in the movie, that, that but it's, it. it's just a, it's just his double or whatever. It's clearly not him. Right. Well, I wasn't even sure if they were actually trying to imply it's the same character. Yeah, he's in the exact same clothes, yeah. Yeah, well, maybe that was just a And he's drunk and he's falling over. And, <laughs> well, yeah. okay. You make a point, Pat. Yeah. <laughs> um... But the other sequence that they shot for TV, apparently two years later, is with Jesse Vint. And it's two or three of those, two out of three of Jody's tormentors. 
and you find out the origin of this box of jewelry that he catches them with and uses as an excuse to shoot them later. Oh, it's a whole important. long protracted scene <laughs> where they're in this pawn shop and they're going through all this shit. And the pawn shop, the old man who runs a pawn shop has had a heart attack during the earthquake and died and his dead body is laying there. And they're just, they, they theoretically have, they, he actually, one of those two guys has a tag for a, a watch that he pawned. And he's trying to get that watch back, supposedly. Uh, but they're really like stuffing their pockets with all the cash and all the sort of jewelry they can find. And then this this pawn shop guy's wife is there. She shows up. She pulls a gun on them hmm. and t- tells them to empty their pockets and tells them they're, they're, they're the scum of the earth. And she knows they're trying to rob. And, they're, and this guy's like, no, no, I was just trying to get my watch back. And so she's like, okay, give me the ticket. And she actually gets his watch and gives it to him. And she says, get out of here. And she's like, oh, wait, and take this suitcase with you. And they're like, that's not our suitcase. And she's like, this isn't our suitcase. And they open up the suitcase, and it's that suitcase full of jewelry that you see them with later on in the movie. And they say, oh, you know, your husband was probably fencing stolen jewelry. And she's like, bullshit. My husband would never do that. And she says, you take that briefcase full of jewelry and get out of here. So she gives them all that stuff. So they weren't actually even stealing the stuff that that Marjorie Gardner catches them with. A very clever made-for-TV twist. Yeah. Not that they weren't already, which is uh, not a not a not a, a jump scare, but is maybe the most shocking moment in in the movie. Is Marjorie mm-hmm. Gordon? Those guys, the other guys, wait like hours before getting freaked out. You know, yeah. after that happens, before they yeah. go and like decide to tell somebody about it. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay, uh, uh, boy, we haven't gotten anywhere in our, <laughs> in our but we digress. We've gotten everywhere, Ben. We've gotten everywhere. Uh, at the California Seismological Institute, staffer Walter Russell. Uh, who is that actor? I, he, every time I see him, I think he's somebody else. Is that Donald Moffat? Oh, no. no, 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 Kip, the no it's guy. Kip Niven. Kip, Kip Niven, Niven. Part, of the, part of the Magnum Force. Ah, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, cool. Uh, no, Donald Moffat is the guy he's afraid is going to laugh at him when he tells right. him that there's going to be an earthquake. Here's something I want to talk about before we get any further. How Donald Moffat was the same age for 30 years? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that for sure. But also, you know, I remember growing up in the 70s on the East Coast, and all you ever heard about was that the big one was coming. Is that mm. still a thing in California yes. and L.A.? Yes. Every time there's a little one, it's like, oh, you know what? This means it's closer to the big one coming. And it's, I don't know, I've lived there for almost 24 years, and... It hasn't come yet. I mean, there was a really big one in '94. What well, well, do you damage. remember? What it was on the uh, on the? Uh... I don't know. I wasn't there yet, but it was in Northridge, and it destroyed a lot of stuff. But a lot of stuff is has been retrofitted since then to not to withstand, mm-hmm. you know, a more serious quake. So, like, they don't have those houses on stilts anymore in L.A. Like in this movie. I mean, I'm sh- they do, but <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. you know, like freeways collapsed, and you know. Mm buildings collapse now like what happens is because like in my apartment building the retrofitting it it, when there's an earthquake it the whole building feels like it sways it's like a swaying like you're in a tree right because they're built on some kind of like rollers or something you know that shock absorbers or whatever um but i suppose if there's one like 
do they ever say do they say what it is an earthquake how, how yeah it's like the, a nine point, nine point it's like nine. yeah so it's like almost yeah nine nine on the richter scale that's what i'm saying like i don't think in, like that one would you know i don't think anything could withstand that yeah but but that hasn't happened but the thing is in the tv version of earthquake where they have a little scientist thing at the beginning where they're talking about earthquakes and how scientists agree that if that that within the next decade if not sooner there will be this you know big earthquake that will you know destroy the, the, the california will sink off the you know into the pacific um well, no opportunity to scare the shit out of TV audiences has ever been missed, I think. so. No, but I'm saying it was, to me as a kid, I heard that all the time. And I well, the trailer, the trailer for the, remember the trailer for The Swarm? Mm-hmm. It's not yeah. just, it's not just a warning. It's a prediction. <laughs> right. The right. world's going to be taken over by African killer. Well, that then they the other did, thing. Did, did that special bulletin movie in the 80s where it was like a special news break of like somebody having a nuclear bomb. Oh, yeah. It's like 80, whatever. 84 or something. And, you know, it was like trying to do like a War of the Worlds thing for television. Right. Well, all I'm saying is that this thing was predicted to be within a decade and it's been 50 years since this movie was made. I mean, eventually it's going to come. I mean, we, we might all be dead from COVID by then, but, you know, I don't know. Right. Eventually. Well, that's, that's the current, like, African killer bees. Scenario. Yes. Yeah. The um, Michael Crichton's the Omicron variant. Right. Uh, so staffer Walter Russell has calculated that Los Angeles will suffer a major earthquake within the next day or two. He frantically tries to reach his superior, Dr. Frank Adams. Another tremor hits as Adams and his assistant are working in a deep Are trance. taking a dirt nap. <laughs> and, and they are buried alive. The scientists at the center debate about whether or not to go public, which is another thing that, I mean, I listen, I, I love this movie, but it seems weird that at the seismology center, they're just now sort of saying, they're just now having this philosophical discussion about whether they should warn the public or not like well, wouldn't that be one of the basic tenets of your whole stupid operation is i like, could understand the the mayor feeling that way and the governor feeling that way and the right. police department feeling that way but why the people whose job it literally right. is to warn people yeah. why do they feel that way like that's their one you had one job <laughs> there's a lot of that in that movie and in all these movies you know in towering inferno it's just like you know they know they they the building doesn't pass the code. Who do we tell? Well, look, let's, you know, it'll be fine kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, people covering their asses. You know, the, the goddamn bureaucracy that that sets right. off all of these movies and is really the problem. Yes. Well, the acting supervisor insists that if they are wrong, their funding will be jeopardized. Mm-hmm. They agree on a compromise to alert the National Guard, which is maybe the worst decision they make, given who's in the National Guard in this mm-hmm. uh, and Jody. Police. Look, one bad apple. <laughs> yeah, one bad apple, indeed. Uh, so that they can at least mobilize to help deal with the fallout. Um, well, let's talk about Marjo Gordner, uh, who I, I, I find him supremely creepy in this movie. Uh, yeah, his I, eyes. I always He's, did. Yeah, those little possum eyes mm-hmm. and that weird wig. The wig. The I mean, wig the hair is weird as it is, and then he puts the wig on top of it because he's in the National Guard. Yeah, yeah. Well, this was his first theatrical film. He had done uh, had like two years of just bang up TV work after, of course, appearing in the documentary Marjo, which was about his childhood and young adulthood as a evangelical preacher yeah exposing the secrets of 
evangelical preachers everywhere. But right off when you know when he decided to get com- commit himself to being an actor, he did two two TV movies that are still you know really well remembered to this day. First was the Marcus Nelson murders, which was the, the film that that inspired Kojak, that Kojak spun off from. Right. Um, and uh, and then he did Pray for the Wildcats, which is just just a just a ter- terrifically creepy uh, deliverance variation made for ABC, I think, right? And uh, yes, and uh, with William Shatner, uh, Robert Reed, and Andy Griffith at his most sinister, even more malevolent than in uh, Face in the Crowd. And, Covered delightfully uh, by Mike and Aaron on Crackpot Cinema. Yes. Yeah, just just yeah. Listen to that episode. Anyway, he's Marjo's probably got the the smallest part of the of the men in that but uh he's good and uh, and then he did a bunch of you know guest starring roles on different series and and made his first uh appearance in earthquake and and then it was you know, it really was kind of downhill from there as a as an actor <laughs> Uh, you Bobby know, Joe and the Outlaws. Bobby Joe and the Outlaws, okay. Food Bobby of the Joe Gods. Bobby Joe and the Outlaws is, just... is a Scott Lucas uh, favorite. That's that's what turned him yeah, into Marjorie okay. Partner. Yeah, okay. That's good. But then he's like the villain in Viva Knievel, and mm-hmm. you know, he's in and just a, and just a ton of TV, and I'm sure he was appearing on variety shows and all that stuff too. It just he ne- it never really quite clicked for him, but he was he was off to a pretty good start. Yeah, he has the distinction of being in Star Crash, which I guess is... Star oh, Crash, yeah, Star yes. Crash. And I think Lewis he's Coates. Like on Love Boat. The... Yeah. Luigi Gazzi. Yeah, he's, 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 um, he's an unsettling presence, but, but a good actor. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that, I, that this is maybe his high watermark, because I've always loved his performance in this movie, and, and it's one of the things oh, it's that the, sticks it's with Oh, it's the thing I remember. Yeah, yeah it's... It's the most. It's he's kind of the most memorable character in the film. Yeah, yeah. That could that could be its own movie. Just that little. That could be a little contained bottle movie. His whole thing with Victoria Principal. Well, his whole Earth. thing. I mean, his whole. Yeah, thing like what's in he into? Apartment. He's got muscle guys like with mm-hmm. their shirts off pictures. He's got what appear to be like German helmets, like yeah. war helmets, uh, Panzer helmets, and then like weird kind of S and M kind of stuff in there. Or, He's got yeah. the Colonel Sanders tie that he wears at the grocery mm-hmm. store. And then all the guys that are yes. tor- tormenting him are calling him the F word. Yeah. And, and you know, but he's, is he, is he overcompensating by trying to rape Victoria Principal because he's insecure and gay? Is it, uh, you know, it's just a very complicated, weird dude. Right. And, and it's left, I don't know, for whatever reason, maybe because they were, you know, I don't know, we're afraid of not censorship, but a rating or something. Because this, by the way, this is like a PG. This is one of these 70s PG movies mm-hmm. that you can't yeah. believe in retrospect is PG. Um, but it, but it's great that like you don't, you don't really learn the mystery of Jody. Like mm-hmm. he remains just an ambiguous, creepy fucking villain that you don't really know what his motivations are. Well, there's lots of people like that in L.A. And second, <laughs> something horrible like that happens, they do something like that. You know, it's just they're just yeah. they're waiting for an excuse to pop their top. Um, yeah, I would say probably most, if not all people I know there are like that. Jody's case, <laughs> he, 
Jody's case, he literally pops his top, right? Don't we, the last time we see him, he's got the Yeah, wig, his wig gets head. blown off yeah. by uh, George Kennedy. Yeah. George flips Kennedy. his lid. Flips his wig. Yeah. Uh, while checking out at a grocery store, Rosa Amici, that's Victoria Principal, in an amazing afro. Uh, and really, I, I, you know, I don't usually like to get into this kind of stuff, but I mean that... Uh, Holy moly. That t-shirt and her... Her body in that T-shirt is one of the, I, you know, I, I've never, I, I, I'm not like a wet T-shirt guy. I don't, I can't no, think of other movies where I'm like, wow, that's amazing. But that's pretty good. That's maybe the second most memorable thing about the movie is it's its own earthquake. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if there's no other reason to check out the TV footage, it's this scene in her apartment because it turns out she's got like 20 of those T-shirts. She's got a closet full of them. And she's like picking it which one and they're all exactly the same it's very strange and then she's taking off and putting on and taking off and putting on those leather pants it's a very long involved yeah. sounds worthwhile yeah yeah it's pretty good uh and, and all the to? all the tv footage is preserved like pan and scan right like the original tv version and i imagine yes. they've they probably shot the new footage in a tv aspect ratio right it doesn't look like it's pan scan doesn't look like it's pan scanned. It looks like it might have been shot on sixteen. Um, uh, it's really shitty looking. Like you could. That's the one reason I believe that it was shot two years later is because it doesn't. Not that the. Not that the. You know the sort of interior cinematography is all that great in yeah. the sort of domestic but, but, scenes, but, but this but is reduced to uh, nominated for an Academy Award for cinematography. Reduced to a sixteen millimeter pan scan TV print. It's not gonna. It's not gonna get improved. Right, exactly. Um, uh, she realizes she doesn't have enough money to pay for all, all her items, but Jody Jode. I don't. I, I don't know if. I don't know if that's an official name. Is his name really Jody Jode? Like I don't Tom think Jode? you ever hear his last name. But well, maybe his name is something things. Jode, and they call him Jody. Oh, that's his nickname. Yeah. Or maybe yeah, they Jody. maybe they shorten Jody sometimes. Say, hey Jode, and then this guy who wrote yeah. this thing thought Jode. Yeah, that could be too. <laughs> Jody Joe, the store manager, says she can pay the difference next time. Joe learns that his guard unit is being called up on the radio. So he leaves work to change into his NCO uniform. At home, his housemates harass and tease him for having posters of male bodybuilders on his wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, Can we talk about that? No, we talked about it. Yeah, we do. Well, yeah, those guys are interesting. It, and it wasn't until watching it again that i realized oh they are actually there's it's not that the, you know i always got the vibe that they were just neighborhood they were his neighbors that they lived in an apartment building in a different apartment but they're actually they're in the same house those are actually his his house yeah, it's like his it's like a, a raymond and peter shut up little man type situation <laughs> yeah. they took yeah. him on as their roommate and then yeah <laughs> yeah um uh, at home, his housemates harass him and tease him for having posters of male bodybuilders on his wall. Among other things. The tremor cancels Denise's shoot, so she heads to Stuart's office pretending to meet with a friend. The Susan. pair go back. Yes, the secretary. Lauren Green's secretary. She's been with mm-hmm. him forever. 10 or 12 years, Heston says. Uh, the yep. pair go back to Denise's house for drinks and end up making love. He promises to come back later that night and invites her and Corey to spend the summer with him in Oregon while he oversees a project. Returning to work, his boss and father-in-law, Sam Royce, 
offers to hand over the company presidency to Stewart. After asking for time to think about it, Stewart calls Denise and breaks off their plans for later that night. He goes to Sam's office to accept the offer, but is stunned to see Remy there. He assumes that she has convinced her father, Sam, to offer the promotion to Stuart in order to save their marriage. Stuart storms out of the building, followed by Remy. When a major earthquake measuring 9.9 on the Richter scale strikes, destroying much of Los Angeles and killing thousands. Can we talk about how, like, I think Charlton Heston goes out for a drink three times before lunch? Like, you see yeah. him, like, he's going out for a drink when he runs into uh, Jean-Vierre Bujold. Uh, like, when uh, when his wife, when Ava Gardner shows up with that whole thing, she's like, where are you going? He's like, anywhere, a bar. It's like, what? are you going anywhere or are you going to a bar? <laughs> going to a bar. And, uh, yes, and he, so he's no clock watcher either. Um, no. <laughs> but what I love about Heston in this movie more than anything, probably, and I love Heston always, but... It's that corduroy jacket, which is so iconic mm-hmm. to me. And it made me think of all the sort of iconic outfits in this movie and other movies, especially action movies. And I realized a lot of it is because they're trying to establish these characters visually so that when the stunt people come and do all the hard work, you're 90% of the way to believing they're whoever they're supposed to be because they're wearing that corduroy And jacket. it's one day, so if there's only one, you know, usually only one outfit, you know. It's like the same thing is true with like, you know, Die Hard or, you know, I remember even doing Cheap Thrills. I'm like, this is like wanted to make that, those, that layers, like, you know, whatever it came down to iconic in some way. You want, you want something that somebody could, you know, potentially be a Halloween costume uh, later that year. Yeah. Yeah. And, but an earthquake is full of those. It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, you put that corduroy jacket on in your Heston, you put that Miles uh, t-shirt on in your Victoria principal. George um, Kennedy's uniform. He even, George okay. Kennedy even goes to the bar with his police uniform on, you know. Right. Walter dressed. Matthau's whole outfit. Walter, outfit. Walter Matthau looks like he's, like he's in the, the, uh, the hair bear bunch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not just the hair, the outfit too. You know? And I think, I, you know, Walter Matthau was a degenerate gambler in real life. So pretty sure that he was there because he lost the bet because he's not credited he clearly shot for a day, maybe. Well, he's credited. He's credited as as what some people say is his real name. No, I don't. I don't think that that's true. But that's it's true. But it's Walter. They have him credited as Walter Matichkansky or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it's a crazy he, name. Yeah. Um, I think I heard that at the time. Like, oh, that's his real name, and I saw it. I saw it maybe on Wikipedia today. But no, I, don't I, know that that's true. I remember reading this in the Judith Christ interview with him when he, you know, was doing one of those Terrytown weekends and mm. he, you know, he, they asked him about that and he said, no, my name is Mathow, M-A-T-T-H-O-W, which is, which is actually his, <laughs> that is his name. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is his real, that is his birth name. I don't know. Why did he change that then? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I guess, uh, I don't know. Now, I want to say that we've been giving, I feel, George Kennedy short shrift only because this Wikipedia synopsis writer has been giving him short shrift. We completely skipped over his opening car chase, which is another highlight of the movie for me, especially the end. Or two things. Uh, Is it during the car chase where he talks about uh, shooting the guy in the toe and he says, 
he gets along fine with nine toes or is that yeah. later on in the station okay i think that's in that so there's that arches. but then there's that great literal punchline where the guy says do you know whose house this is and he says zha zha gabor and then kennedy it's her hedge face. yeah, yeah. And, you yeah, know, right. and it turns out he was chasing that guy because the guy ran over and killed a kid. Yes. Yeah. Who flew up in the air and poured buckets of blood out on the sidewalk. Presumably that happened after it used to be a hell of a town. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it wasn't a hell of, it was a hell of a town. And then that guy <laughs> killed a kid in front of It used of to be him. a hell of a town. And then yeah. the earthquake came and just yeah. screwed up everything. Zaja's Gabor's hedge is all fucked up. It's just yeah. like a mess. I remember that used to be in all the TV promos. Anytime it got shown on TV, that would be George Kennedy punching the camera was always on the. Yeah, he he turns out to be, I would say, the sort of the he's the last guy standing. He's the hero. The movie ends on him. Well, uh, and also as in the airport movies, he's kind of the conscience of the whole. thing. He's not morally compromised. Like he wants to be a cop because he wants to be do good. And it's just not that kind of job anymore, and it's not that kind of town anymore. Right. Whereas, like, and everybody else has, you know, ulterior motives and things. Like, he actually gets to be the kind of guy that he wants to be because of the earthquake. He gets to go around and help people, and even reluctantly, you know, oh, I'm going to go in there and go underground and help uh, Charlton Heston pull those people out and all that stuff because it's the right thing to do, you know. And before that, he's the catalyst for maybe the most suspenseful and exciting, like non-earthquake-related thing that happens in the movie, which is that they run into the National Guard and Jody and Victoria Principles begging them to help, and they do this great thing where they're like, ah, you know, adios, we're getting out of here. Mm-hmm. And he's like, just pull over, pull over, block away. Yeah. And it's great, you know, and that he, gets your heart racing. You're like, yeah, fuck great. yeah, these guys are... Go You're right. That might be the best scene in the movie. And then the, yeah, and then the other guardsmen run off. They're chicken shit. What's, this guy's crazy. Let's go turn him in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now he's crazy. Yeah. And do you think that it's? Um, I mean, he. It feels like, and maybe I'm just oversimplifying, but it's like this dirty Harry thing. It's it's like they, that character is built to capitalize on that trend of like the, you know, the the re, the renegade cop who's like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he's he's busy tearing shit up at whatever cost to make sure the yeah the bureaucracy it doesn't allow things to to work correctly anymore. So he's got to just go right to the root of the problem and take care of it himself. Yeah, although uh, you know, I would imagine any cop would try and shoot Jody. Yeah. <laughs> well, but maybe not punch another cop's teeth out. It's almost surprising that Jody isn't a cop. I mean, if he was a National Guard, he'd be a cop. Yeah, it's true. Uh, uh, blah, 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 blah. Sam and most of his employees find themselves trapped on the upper floors of their 30-story skyscraper as it fills with phosgene gas. Mm-hmm. They right. descend most of the way by the stairs, but the earthquake has collapsed part of the stairwell. Sam rigs a fire hose to a chair and lowers his staff down one at a time. What a great we set. We can't, also, we can't skip the uh, my favorite scene in the movie which is that the the guy who tried to sneak the building codes he he throws lauren green's secretary out of the elevator for some reason all those people get in an elevator right and then it crashes and then it's freeze frame and then like animated blood blood, yeah Yeah. Yeah. it on the lens i love that apparently they tried to figure out a way to make it work with you know squib packs and stuff going off as the you know as the elevator's getting thrashing everybody around but it just it it didn't the camera didn't catch it and it didn't work. 
Just added the cartoon. I like the cartoon blood, and I like the cartoon birds flying away over the dam. That sort of signals the... uh, Yeah, yeah. But I will say that the TV version doesn't have the cartoon blood. It just has the freeze frame. Yeah. That's unfortunate. They ruined it. Um... So, so uh, 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 I think it's a uh, it's important to talk about Albert Whitlock mm-hmm. uh, and the amazing matte paintings. Well, like so much of that is like I don't know if there was a dam there. I mean, there certainly hasn't been one in the time since I've lived there. But so many of just the t- simple shots of like people when when. Uh, you know, Charlton Heston is driving down the hills at the beginning and all those, mm-hmm. those, most of those houses on stilts and things are, are matte paintings. And yeah. of course, you know, the stuff later on and post disaster are, are all matte paintings and things too. But, um, yeah, they're quite great. I mean, I, every time I see something that Albert work, Whitlock worked on, it's pretty remarkable work. Yeah. And, and there's a, and if you watch, there's a featurette, um, you know, that shows, just about all of those paintings and shows the, you know, shows the part of the frame that wasn't a painting and then shows the paintings. And they're amazing. Like, you know, I didn't realize nine out of 10 of them were where the painting ends and where the actual live footage begins. It's beautiful, beautiful stuff. I mean, I think that, you know, there's no getting around the fact that this film is full of great special great effects, special matte effects. paintings, miniatures, really great miniatures. Yeah. I mean, Fantastic. Capitol Records building. Yeah, I would wish that a single Godzilla movie had any miniatures along the lines of the greatness of the stuff that you see for most of it. I thought about the same thing last night, that it's almost like Hollywood showing Toho in 1971. See, this is is how it's done. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and it's and it's 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 hard to hard to argue with, and and the stunt work, the um, we haven't talked at all about Richard Roundtree and his plot, and uh, we, we well, and his partner, who's played by Gabe Dell. Gabe Dell, who's got one of the craziest careers I've ever seen in movies uh, and TV. I had no idea. Do you, do you do you know what I think of as his craziest credit, and it's towards the very end of his career? Boba Fett in the yes. Star Wars holiday special. Yes, yes. <laughs> like of all the random things, the two, the three. Well, three things I'll say about him is he's one of the original dead end kids, and then is 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 he still around when they're the Bowery Boys? Is he still yep. part of the game? Oh yeah, oh yeah. And then, uh, and then right after Earthquake is his greatest uh, adult or you know mature movie role, which is uh, uh, Joe Don Baker's hitman partner in phil carlson's framed mm-hmm. he's fantastic in that film right. and uh, the third thing is is that for apparently several years in the i don't know in the 60s and into the 70s he was joan river's boyfriend lover when she was married to edgar and he was her co-star in a in a broadway play that yes they, yeah that edgar and joan wrote that that's I think right closed after eight performances uh, but i think that's just, how they met Ah, okay. There's a you can you can buy a playbill on eBay for like forty bucks. That's got the that that cast on the cover of it. She confessed to that on uh, Howard Stern show, and she also said she had a one nighter with Robert Mitchum after they appeared on Johnny Carson once. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Blockbuster stuff right here. Uh. 
Oh, so anyway, so I was saying Richard Roundtree, because uh, I was talking about stuntmen, and that that loop-de-loop, that failed the, loop-de-loop, fantastic. Well, so I read that at the time, Earthquake had the most stuntmen ever employed by a single feature. And the stunts in the movie are just nonstop great once the, you know, once the tremors start, start. But I don't think any of them are bested by that failed loop-de-loop. That is the most jaw-dropping stunt in the whole movie. Yeah. I can't imagine that. <laughs> that I know, person walked I, away right. from that and, you, and it's and it's such a surprising thing that they leave it in and and just and just act like yeah this guy just got up from that like he yeah. just took it off like dude you just fucking landed with a motorcycle on top of you Rough. uh yeah um uh blah 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 uh sam and most of his employees find themselves trapped on the upper floors of their 30-story skyscraper oh let me just say uh that Gabe Dell reminds me of no one so much as, um, what's his name? Tom Savini in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. He's got a little Tom Savini. Yeah. De- and I guess it's a, I guess that he and Victoria Principal, I mean, they're, 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 they're really sort of caricaturing like Italians, I guess. Oh their, yeah, that's right. Is right. their thing. Although she, yeah, it's hard to tell what, I mean, she could be anything, I suppose, but, but, yeah. uh, Rosa and Italians. Uh, well, the previous uh, the the previous year, I think, Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean is her first movie, isn't it? And then mm. Victoria uh, Principal. Oh, is that? I don't know. Yeah, I and then have, both she and uh, both she and Ava Gardner are Paul Newman's two great loves in that film. So. Okay, I'm sorry. I was in the. I was actually in the middle of this paragraph before. I, uh, before yeah. Sam can descend himself, he suffers a heart attack, and Stewart climbs up to rescue him. Denise's son, meanwhile, has been caught on a bridge over a spillway, which has become entangled with high-voltage electric cables. Denise finds him unconscious on the concrete and climbs down to save him. Unable to climb back out with her son, she hails a passing truck driven by stuntman Miles Quaid and his partner Salamichi. Right, and they they miss a big opportunity for a joke there, because as they're putting Corey on the back of the truck... They said, we got to get him to a hospital. And then she says, there's no hospital for Miles. And... Richard Roundtree doesn't say, I don't need a hospital. But um bump. But that's yes, also that, great stuff, too. Right, there, including, there's a shot of Jean-Vierre Bujolt having to sort of pull herself up on what's left of that bridge. And it's like, I think that's her. And, you know, the actors themselves are doing some pretty serious physical stuff. Yeah. I mean... You know, not to say nothing of all the physical stuff Heston has to do in this movie and George Kennedy. Um, yes, I'm like I don't I couldn't do that stuff. I can't Swimming and jackhammering and, and right, right. You know, dodging debris. Well, that's a funny. There's a funny like reversal of what the usual thing. You know, in most sort of bank heist and prison escape movies, the characters will talk about. There's no way to get through that. That's like two solid feet of concrete. In this movie, Heston's like, there's only two feet of concrete. There's no problem. We'll just get in there with a jackhammer. Right. We'll yeah. be in there in no time. And they do do it pretty quickly. Yeah. yeah. And then there's just some dirt, and they just kind of brush it away, and then they're yeah. in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, At that point, it's like, yeah, you've been through enough aggravation. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Make this an easy one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, after saving Denise and her son, they drive in search of help, coming across LAPD Sergeant Lou Slade, who's organizing rescue efforts, and commandeers their truck to use it as an ambulance. 
Rosa is arrested for looting by a National Guard unit led by Jody Jode. <laughs> Rosa assumes Jody is going to let her go, but he orders her to stay inside a secluded store for safety. Another group of troops arrive with Jody's housemates, who are also being detained for looting. Jody executes them in an act of revenge for all the ridicule he has endured from them, terrifying Rosa and his subordinates. He's like one of the original incels, I guess, Jody. Yeah, that's, that's, that's <laughs> yeah, a good way to Fair start. enough. Yeah. Stewart escorts his co-workers to the Wilson Plaza shopping center, now converted into a triage center, and then goes off in search of Denise and her son. Soon after, Sam dies from his heart attack. Stewart ends up driving Lou around in search of survivors. They come across Jody and his regiment. Jody threatens to fire on them if they come any closer. Rosa emerges from the store, screaming and begging for help. Lou and Stewart drive away, but stop out of sight. Lou sneaks back and gets the jump on Jody, shooting Jody in self-defense and rescuing Rosa. As they drive away, they hear that another aftershock has destroyed Wilson Plaza. Surveying the damaged building, Stuart realizes there are survivors trapped in an underground garage three stories below ground. He and Lou crawl into the sewer and, using a jackhammer, drill through to the garage. Stuart is overjoyed to find Denise, who is one of the people trapped inside. As he hugs her, he sees his wife Remy standing just behind her. The Mulholland Dam, damaged by the earlier tremor, finally gives way, flooding the sewers. Lou and Denise make it up the ladder to safety. But as Remy climbs out, a man steps on the rung she's holding, and she falls back into the flooded sewer. Stuart looks up at Denise, but he cannot bring himself to abandon his wife to death. He sacrifices himself when he swims after her, and both of them are swept away along with the others. This Denise is, wa- uh, yes? sorry, do we want to go to the end? I don't know, but I think I, we, we kind of need to talk about this a little bit, I think. It's just, yeah, it's a shocking moment. It's really, uh really surprising i mean well i guess we already mentioned how downbeat the movie is and and it but it doesn't uh, have precedent in in the previous disaster movies right or the ones to come no no the airport films are very you know very much upbeat i mean i suppose you know shelly winters you know sacrifice in her heart attack you know but but it's but also gene hackman gene Gene hackman Hackman too yeah he's the lead and you know he he uh I guess he sacrifices himself, right? He's gotta turn the uh he's gotta turn the valve and yeah. he can't hang on anymore. Right. But this is just kinda of shocking because you're like yeah. the Charles Nelson makes that choice at that moment. Yeah. Because she it's not like she has proven herself to be a better person or anything, but it is the moral thing to do to somebody's clearly like he could possibly save her life. Jean Vieve Bujold is safe, so he but I think it's a tough... I don't know that I fully buy the argument that he believes he has a chance of saving her. It really is almost like he sacrifices himself, not in an effort so much to save her, but just to sort of... I don't want to live in this shit world anymore kind or, of way. Or to, 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 to sort of like um, re, realign himself, like, uh, but pledge his allegiance to her. Like he's had to make a choice between these two women, and throughout the movie he seems to be making the choice towards Denise... Most of the time, but stuck with this sort of final choice to make, he chooses death and Ava Gardner. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I, I'm I'm not saying that that's. I, I always get that vibe that it's like he he doesn't. It doesn't feel as much like he's in the middle of a heroic act the way Gene Hackman's death plays. Yeah, right. He's not. Yeah. 
No, he, yeah, it's, it's, it's very complicated. It's like, what is he committing suicide? I mean, his life is very complicated at that point. He's not going to be able to go to Washington. I guess he could go. He's not, that job's not happening anymore. Obviously, the, the, the architectural firm, or Oregon, I should say, doesn't exist anymore. He's not going to be president. But he could have a life with Jean-Bierre Vujol because that life's all wiped out now. Yeah. Does he, is he... Is and he, he has no allegiance to Lauren Green or, like, you know, protecting his reputation or anything. Is it just he, he can't live with him, the thought of going to the, to the top and, you know, and, and live, living with that. himself, if knowing that he just yeah, let his I, wife I think that's it. get washed down the sewer? I think so. Yeah. He's got, he's got a tough, he's got, he's got no good answers, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it, it was a devastating <laughs> turn of events for me as a kid, and uh, and and it really, yeah, this movie. As many times I see it, it never gets any. It never sort of. I never get to see it. Never. There's never like a. Oh, well, it's not so depressing. Oh, no, it okay. ends with the tough cop character crying. I mean, it's just like. Ugh. And I never thought about that, Ben, before you brought it up earlier in the in the podcast that you know that he's he's frequently dead at the end of these movies yeah this in this part of his career yes and you know omega man he's clearly putting himself in a christ-like position yes i mean he literally is like has his arms out at the end of it and um you know he's almost a god at the end of Beneath the Planet of the Apes, he's destroying the universe, uh, and, and yeah, he knows he is. Right, he's putting himself in front of the bomb. You know, the bomb. Right. The, the, the 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 mutants think the bomb is just going to go off on its on its own. They worship it like it's a thing, and he's like, "I'm going to show you." You know, I'm <laughs> only but only one, one person can do this. Right, but this one, it, it just feels like a waste. There's nothing, you know. Yeah. As as you know, as does a lot of the you know the tragedy of the film. It's just random and you know. Sure, absolutely, and I think that I think that it's one thing that Eli Roth tried to, and in some ways was successful at tapping into when he made his earthquake movie, which is the sort of randomness of who gets killed and and at what. Oh point right, that Chilean the thing. thing. Yeah. yeah. What's the name of that thing? Oh, I forget. The Green Inferno. No, it's the one. Before he 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 wrote and Green produced it and his is in it. He didn't, one. Was, yeah, he didn't direct it. He didn't direct. Oh, this. he did an earthquake. Movie? Yeah, and it's and it's got a one of those uh, funicular cars and that figures into it. Hmm. Oh, he didn't direct that. No, I don't think so. Oh, okay. Aftershock. Aftershock. Yeah. He's in it. Could, uh, yeah. He's in it. He wrote it and produced it and. I right. think it's, directed uh, by Nicholas Lopez. Right, who I think is Chilean. Yeah. Yeah, I think we showed it as uh, part of our Yeah, fest- as our Latin American series. series. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, he sacrifices himself. They he swims after her. They're both swept away. Denise walks away from the manhole in shock and grief. Dr. Vance turns to Slade. And says, this used to be a hell of a town, officer. Yeah, replies Slade, as tears well up in his eyes. Meanwhile, the remaining survivors take in the devastated L.A. cityscape. And 
Thanks, everybody. Go back out to your lives. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what a great entertainment. It's some sad music. Well, yeah. people did uh, turn out in droves to see it. Well, Ben, what's your memory of Sense Around? Because I never saw a Sense Around film. Uh, you know. I mean, is it matched we... now by like Atmos and Dolby yes. Cinema? A- it, well, it's out. It's outmatched by, by yeah. those things. Uh, um. I was, I mean, theoretically, there's a sense around rumble to this Blu-ray, uh, the Shout Factory one. Yeah, we um, watched it with the subwoofer on last yeah. night. It was pretty, pretty good. Yeah, but yeah, that's nothing, fine. Nothing, nothing that we're not used to. No, and nothing, nothing all that, nothing all that thrilling about it. I, as I was saying in another episode, I, I saw, I know I saw this in Sense Around. I saw Earthquake and I mean, a roller coaster in Sense Around. I thought, I thought I saw for some reason Buck Rogers in Sense Around, but it must have been Battlestar Galactica. Oh, one yeah, of those two was Sense. Battlestar Galactica was the one thing I remember about Sense Around at the time, and I wasn't aware of it until Roller Coaster and then Battlestar Galactica came out. Was one of the one of the two of the movies was reviewed on Siskel and Ebert, and one of them, I'm pretty sure it was Siskel, said, "You know, this is the sound." system where you know you're in a theater that has it because as you walk in the lobby the juju bees are vibrating on the candy counter yeah <laughs> yeah the juju bees or something like that i have to go back and find out which which film it was but um yeah it's basically 3.1 sound right it's left right and front and center channels up front and a giant and a gi- giant subwoofer or or two left and right channels and a giant subwoofer something like that well it's not even that. When I was I was watching another featurette where they were talking about sense around, and it's that, at least the way they described it, is that there's a, there's actually like a, a sort of a signal that they place on the film soundtrack, and that signal triggers a sense around box, which which also is and Ben Burt was actually talking about this in this Shadow mm. Factory thing. That the, that there was a there was some sort of a synthesizer which would then create this rumbly tone when the when it was triggered by whatever signal was on the actual thirty five millimeter soundtrack. Oh, um, so it's the box isn't the subwoofer. That's just a whole separate. That's like a synthesizer, is what you're saying. I, I the box feel like is the synthesizer. I feel like there are two things. There, there are two pieces of hardware. One of them is a, is a speaker, like a subwoofer, and the other one is this synthesizer unless they're both part of the same box hmm. but that they're somehow triggered by this tone that's generated on the film soundtrack that's how ben burt described it anyway so the couple stories i read were that uh in chicago i guess they were trying it out at some of the loop theaters and the one of the building commissioners or building safety code people shut it down or tried to shut it down because it was a a danger to the structure of the theater and the surrounding Mm -hmm. buildings Mm -hmm. and at the and at a preview screening at the chinese theater in downtown los angeles they uh they had uh plaster falling from the ceiling and then when the by the time the movie opened there they had put up a net underneath the ceiling to catch any of the falling plaster. But but before they even came up with Sense Around, uh, Jennings Lang and his team were thinking about actually having 
foam rubber debris, giant pieces that would fall <laughs> on the audience's head. But I, I can't I imagine that's like more of a thrill if you're seeing it happen in front of your eyes. But if then if then falls on you and it's just a piece of foam rubber, it's it kind of yeah. takes the thrill away. Yeah, I don't remember feeling particularly like I, I definitely wasn't. Definitely, none of the sensory movies I saw felt loud enough to get me nervous about anything. It didn't feel like anything was actually rattling around in the theater. My feelings weren't rattling around. Um, uh, you know, uh, but I didn't, I, I don't, I also don't remember feeling disappointed. I think I felt like, oh, that's cool. Um, and, you know, but nothing, it's nothing, nothing compared to sort of the modern audio experience. Yeah, everything makes your, your, teeth yeah. rattle now when we saw that last spider-man movie that was the only time i was ever in a dolby cinema not the one that's out now but the one a couple of years ago uh far from home and the the i mean the whole movie it felt like we you know we were on a amusement park right the, the seats were just vibrating yeah, i see like time. a lot of things in a dolby cinema i love it yeah those are the ones, and they have those laser projectors that have like the deep blacks. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think so. deep blacks, and you know, I think they have like subwoofers under. Each yeah, like seat. every seat has a subwoofer. Yeah. It's that's nice. It is nice. <laughs> the like other it. iconic thing about this movie that I haven't talked about to me, anyway, is is the is the truck that Heston's driving. That Chevy. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, we talked to Jim's uh, wife. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my sister-in-law Katie pointed that out right now. She was. The woman was the one that was really excited by that car of the, of the three yeah. of us. She said it looked like a spaceship. Yeah, it does kind of look like a spaceship. It like reminds me uh, on our on my on my cross on my family's cross country trip in nineteen summer of seventy seven summer of Sam when we saw Star Wars in Chicago. We eventually the whole way me and my sisters were complaining. We all we want to do is stay at hotels and go to amusement parks. And my parents were like, "No, we're camping, and we're not going to every amusement park that we." pass by but when we finally got to california we we had been whining for three weeks straight and they finally like okay fine and they took us to universal studios and i remember one of the things you could do there was this truck that to me and i think i have a picture of it somewhere looked exactly like heston's truck and maybe it was but i feel like it was more about i feel like it was more about a buy like a six million dollar man was that a I universal just, thing well they yes. have that six yeah. million dollar man tunnel in from the bigfoot episode at universal that's funny you said that ben because you know i've never been a universal hollywood but that the first thing i thought of you know after katie said it looked like a spaceship was look like it belongs on six million dollar man yes i think it was because i think you could go up to this truck and it was on a hydraulic lift and you could as a kid lift it and tilted oh, wow. that's neat. Yeah. and then it's like he mentions um george kennedy tries to drive it that it's totally custom made and like yeah, yeah. He's the only he says he's got eight it. gears or what yeah he's had it <laughs> yeah. all custom done so yeah maybe that was the only one like that that existed i went on the earthquake ride at universal orlando with you pat yeah they still have that at hollywood too. And they've, they've reformatted it a little bit i guess you go right? underground in a subway station and then the it, right. The earthquake happens, and there's like a there's a truck that crashes through. Yeah, the street. that street is a gas truck, and it like explodes. Yeah. It's like you can really feel the heat from the flames from the gas. And truck then things start flooding. And... Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the stairs start flooding on the subway, but then just in time, you yeah. you're pulled out of there. It reminds me that reminds me of one other little throwaway moment that is one of my favorite 
moments from this last viewing is is George Kennedy apologizing to Charlton Heston fairly early on after he initially tries to hijack the truck. And then not too long after, he realizes that Heston's a good guy and he's like, hey, I'm sorry about the truck thing. And it's just, it was cute and like, and, and friendly and nice. And I was like, oh, that, you don't see that much in these kind of movies. Yeah, right. it is nice. So uh, I got a nice round of uh, what else was playing that week. But do you want to say anything about Mark Robeson? I don't think we've really talked about him at all. Um, solid director. Like a lot of really good films. He was Robert Wise's assistant editor. Mm-hmm. I guess that makes him Morrison Wells' assistant editor on yes. Citizen Kane. Yeah. And then like Wise, he got brought into the Val Luton low-budget mm-hmm. production unit at uh, at at RKO and made the the best films of those of that of that series that weren't directed by uh, Jacques Tourneur. And I'm thinking specifically of uh, the Body Snatcher. He's that's his right, Body Snatcher. I think so. No, se- the seventh, 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 seventh victim, ghost seventh ship. victim. Okay, did oh then maybe Robert Wise did uh, Body Snatcher. Yeah, I think so. He did Bedlam. Bedlam's very good. Anyway, they're all they're. And then he directed Champion with Kurt. Champion is maybe my favorite film of his. It's it's great. Although Peyton Place and Valley of the Dolls are very. I'm a big fan of both of those and Earthquake as well. Uh, He was just really good with actors. I think he just had just a good sense of drama he was um uh after luton he was part of um and i think after champion he was part of samuel goldwyn's um slate of directors and he he directed some interesting films for him in the early 50s uh bridges are good atoko re uh Uh, no not that one the before that like i is i want you one oh i want you yeah yeah, bright victory edge of bright victory is very interesting did he do my foolish heart is that his too 49 my foolish heart is the only film ever adapted from uh a a jd salinger uh, story Mm. uh but um and that's a good film uh despite what salinger thought of it Mm. Uh, he also directed uh humphrey bogart's last film the the harder they they fall fall, which is very good um and uh yeah just talented guy so he i think he only directed one more film after earthquake and that was avalanche express yes and he died in the middle of production and mm. uh the last third of the film still needed to be shot and um monty hellman came in and replaced him and then robert shaw died too robert shaw died but right after production like he right. made it all the way through but i think like his voice needed to be dubbed and another actor ended up dubbing it do you think he decided to retire after earthquake and then got pulled back in one more time even though he- i doubt it he wasn't he was still in his 60s right or and so he well, probably it's interesting that he didn't get anything else done after earthquake which was a, a, a huge a success hit. yeah yeah but he so maybe do anything until 79 which is five years could later. be maybe maybe that's the point that he was sick or something sick or or just didn't want to direct anymore and got pulled into Avalanche Express because of the money or uh, yeah, whatever. Yeah, he made a ton of money off Earthquake, probably. Yeah. I've got a few money. Did you want to say anything about Jennings Lang, Ben? <laughs> not really. Not really. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to say he's the, he's, you know, not only is he the, the guy who took uh, Walter Wanger's, uh, got shot by Walter Wanger for sleeping with Joan Bennett, Wanger's wife, but he's also the uh, the voice on the um, intercom 
phone in uh, real life that's sitting around Albert Brooks's real life sitting the uh, sitting around the production meeting table. Oh, he's, wow. he's he's representing the studio system and he has the line Schmuck James Kahn. Right? Isn't that the line? <laughs> yeah, he's like I'll tell you a name, James Kahn. <laughs> yeah. And he's the reason Where's Paul around. Newman? <laughs> <laughs> that's what they'll be saying. And he's the reason Walter Matthau's in this in Earthquake. He lost, right. lost a bet to him, had a, some kind of gambling debt. But yeah, Walter Wenger shot him in the ass in 1949 or something like that. Who's the bald guy who, who gets into it with George Kennedy at the bar slash pool hall? He's like oh, a, yeah, H.B. Haggerty. That's the right. Yeah. He's, there's a whole story with him. Familiar face in a lot of yeah. action films in, yeah. the, in the 70s. Stuntman. He was a professional football player. He played for the Lions and the Green Bay Packers under mm. a different name. I can't remember his his real name. But Something then he be- Haggerty. but then he became a professional wrestler under the name H. B. Haggerty, and that was his acting name. Uh, the H. B. stood for hard boiled, and his tag team partner. <laughs> it's a hard boiled His tag team partner was Lenny Montana, who later played Luca Brasi in The Godfather. Oh wow. Wow. And they both show up uh, in Jackie Chan's first American movie, The Big Brawl, a.k.a. Battle Creek Brawl. Earthquake opened uh, Friday, November 15th, 1974 in New York and probably in Chicago, right? Same time. A Thanksgiving yeah. feast for the eyes. And it got... Yeah, I mean, a, you, it, could, you, you could spend a day at the movies and see Airport 75 and Earthquake. They were both in theaters at the same time. Yes. Yeah, yes. as opposed oh. to just seeing one movie now that would be the same length as all <laughs> yes. of us. Okay, well, you've blown, blown one of my playing this week surprises. <laughs> but, uh, 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 but it got a good review in the Times but, oh, from this third-string critic. Um, but she liked it. I won't read her review, but she was she was into it. And Pauline Kael kind of gave it a, you know, semi-recommendation, kind of a left-handed compliment kind of thing when she said it's just it's pure trash but it's it's a fun enjoyable set of destructive set pieces or something like that. it's about right yeah <laughs> but also playing uh in new york that day was um uh a bob fossey film that i have to admit i've never sat through in its entirety and I'm lenny you, yeah should i uh i'm not a I'm not a big fan of any Fosse film except for Sweet Charity. I mean, I'm, I, that's one, actually one of my biggest, uh, one of the things that makes me a pretty big outcast among fellow cinephiles is I do not like all that jazz. I don't get it either. I've tried. Starting when I, I was one as a kid. I certainly liked it as a kid. I certainly liked it seeing it in a the theater and I was like, oh, wow, this is. I think I probably even saw it more than once, but I have to also say I've never seen it since and had no interest. I've had no interest in revisiting. Yeah, I, I thought it was weird and cheesy as a kid, and then I, yeah. I figured as a adult because everyone loves it, I would eventually come to like it. But I, I don't, and I've tried many, many times. Do you and not Lenny, appreciate I, I thought, Roy Scheider in that movie though? No, no, no. I, I think I, I, it's a good actor, but it, but I always felt that I always felt even as a kid seeing it, and then I gave it another chance. In my early 30s, uh, you know, I just, why would anybody care about that? I guy? just, I just watched it again a few years ago when the Criterion came out and I just like, it just doesn't do anything for me. I don't know what it is. Yeah. I just, it, stylistically, it's I just like things about it, but 
I, I like watched Star Eighty recently, and I, that didn't do anything for yeah. me. And he was one of those directors. He was on a real bummer trip, man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. I mean, I never saw any of his Broadway stuff, and I would have loved to. But uh, his movies are really, uh, really downbeat. He was trying to outbum everybody in the seventies somehow, which yeah. is really something. What about Cabaret's? Oh, decent. No, go ahead. I mean, they're all well made. I mean, yeah. he's a talented guy, but. Yeah, how's Dustin Hoffman as Lenny Bruce? I think that movie is g- good. I saw it again a few years ago, but you know, it's not a great movie. It's really interesting as a uh, as a precursor to Raging Bull. I think there are a lot of things in that mm. movie that seem to be in Raging Bull, especially that sort of CD nightclub thing and that black and white cinematography in that world. There, there are some things that seem to be. Uh, precedence to that but i didn't it, nothing really particularly strikes me about it. i mean i you know he's great as always and in, in it dustin hoffman but i also don't know that i care that much about the money Bruce story to be honest with you it's another guy on a bummer trip yeah right i've never heard i've never laughed at anything i've ever heard lenny bruce do or seen yeah i mean i guess i only know like after he got all crazy and wound up with stuff i've heard some of that stuff and it's okay but it's like i don't know dated now i guess at the at the 34th street east was a movie with roger moore and Susanna york gold yes a peter hunt film mm. peter hunt who was a james bond editor james bond editor yes i didn't think yeah guy. no i think he's an editor and then later directed um on her majesty's secret service and did he do any others? Did he direct any others? Uh-huh. No. Just that Just one. That one. Uh, have you seen Gold? Yeah, I've seen Gold. It's forgettable. Um, but not not awful. Um, you know, I don't think I've seen it. Kind of a, one, like one of these mid-70s international co-productions. It's got all these exotic locations. I think it's all set in South Africa. And, um, you know, it was... I think I watched it on Amazon Prime sometime in the last decade. He directed Charles Bronson and uh, oh, Death Joe Hunt. Harland in um, Assassination. Assassination and Death Hunt. Death he directed Hunt. Death yeah. Hunt, too. Oh, which is okay. a pretty good movie. And Rough Cut, he was the, the director who came in and took over for uh, Don, Don Siegel. Siegel yeah. Oh, wow. After Bette Midler. Uh, no, that's Jinxed. Oh, Jinxed, yeah. No. Rough Cut. He did. And Jinxed. <laughs> he, had, he had trouble. Uh, did he take over on Jinxed, too? I don't think so. I think no. Siegel finished that. Film. Yeah, but that's where he Who's in Rough Cut? Around. Remind me, Rough Cut. Burt Reynolds, Reynolds, David yes. Niven. Okay. It's a jewel Thief movie. Right, right, right. Was that the one? Shout, was was Burt Reynolds Sands wig in that movie, or was they wanted him no. to no. be? No, wig wouldn't. and mustache. Oh, okay. I've never seen it though. It's one I need to mm. catch up. I with. haven't seen it either. Yeah. Mm. At the Plaza, uh, Roger Corman presented one of the ten best movies of the year, according to Gene Shalit. What was that movie? Uh, oh, so it's uh, Amacord? Yes. All right. Mm-hmm. At the Lowe's Tower East, uh, a movie with music by Jerry Fielding, co-starring the Paul... Killer Elite? No, good, though. Mm-hmm. Co-starring Paul Sorvino and Lauren Hutton. I'm not giving you the director or the lead. Paul Sorvino and Lauren Hutton. Oh, okay, so you're, 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 you're burying the I'm lead. I'm burying the leads. Or the, the lead. I'm bearing the director and the writer. Oh, uh, is it The Gambler? Yes, it is The Gambler. Oh, Nicely right. done. 
I think I like the gambler a little bit more than than you, Pat. Yeah, I, I thought it was okay. Yeah, I, I like it. Ago. I like it. It's it's moody. What's the best James Toback movie? That's it. Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen Fingers for a while, but I wasn't that impressed by Fingers. I know a lot of people love it, but yeah. No, and, and James Toback didn't direct The Gambler. He just he just wrote it, but he's all over Oh, yeah, it. I'm sorry. Right. Good point. Carol Rice directed it. Uh, over at uh, some Paramount Presentation Showcase Theaters, including The Quad and in my hometown of Brooklyn at The Midwood, which was my home theater, was a movie that I don't think I ever saw, at least not until it was on TV, but it's but that's a movie that I remember my family, my grandparents, and maybe even my dad were, were would would have been happy to take me to. I, f- I feel like they were always saying, like, oh, you should go. I'll take you to see this movie. And for whatever reason, I didn't want anything to do with it. <laughs> uh, starring Richard Dreyfuss. Oh, Duty Kravitz. Yeah, The Apprenticeship of Duty Kravitz. Oh, that was a good one. Yeah. Yeah, I like that film too. Well, it's got Jack you, you, Warden, so it's got to be watchable. Yeah, you, you know. So did you ever? No, catch I, up I with have it? caught up to it. It's yeah. fine. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it just I don't know. There was something I get. I felt like it was all about that there was like a Jewish angle, and that's why they wanted to drag me to it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it was whatever. I was more interested in what was the what were the we talked about this not too long ago. Those rabbi French rabbi movies. Oh yeah, Canadian. the Adventures of Mad Adventures of Rabbi Jacob. Yeah, yeah. that was like take me to yeah. that. I'll go see that. <laughs> um, Mad Adventures. Yeah, there's a full. Pa- Mad Adventures are much more exciting than apprenticeships. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I feel like even after seeing Jaws and being totally like into Richard Dreyfus, I still was like a hard sell on that movie. Uh, but there's a full page ad for uh, Earthquake, uh, and the tagline was, "You'll feel it as well as see it." And I'll tell you, and there's a big stamp of an attention. Attention, this motion picture will be shown in the startling new multi-dimension of sense around. The multi-dimension of sense around. Please be now, aware. Does, what? Does the ad does the ad does the ad say if it's playing in sense around in every theater it's showing I'll take in? A or look is in it a second? Is it, but let me read the yeah. rest of this morning. Please yeah, be sorry, aware. That's fine. Please be aware that you will feel as well as see and hear realistic effects such as might be experienced in an actual earthquake. The management awesome. assumes no responsibility for the physical or emotional reactions of the individual viewer. Oh, my God. No wonder it was a third highest grossing film of the yeah. year. Right. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's it's one of these carny, you know, it's t- totally like William Castle. Yeah. Kind of um, Who doesn't want to experience that? Uh, it was only, it was, the premiere engagement was only at three theaters in the area. The Ziegfeld. Oh, nice. And on Long Island at the UA Cinema 150 and the UA and in New Jersey at the UA Cinema 46. Boy, I didn't remember. Oh, that's what we cinema. saw. We, a lot we, of we saw a lot of great movies at the Cinema 46. Yeah, in Totowa. We went. Uh, it was in Totowa. Totowa. Yeah. yeah, just what was just up with UA only naming their theaters like numbers, like every every. No, so a Cinema 46 is. The, the route, it was on Route 46 oh, okay. in New Jersey. Okay. But UA Cinema 150s were a national thing, oh, and really? they were like Cinerama theaters. There was one in Oak Brook, Illinois. What do you think the 150 um, was about? The 150-foot screen uh, or something? Something about the screen and the dimensions. It's, it's somewhere somewhere in there. Um, and they were they were like, they were real showcase places. It was like all those 70-millimeter 
roadshow musical movies would show at the Cinema 150. So it doesn't it doesn't specifically talk about Sense Around not being at any of those three theaters. So I'm assuming they all had it. But Cinema 46, we saw like 70 oh. millimeter six track Dolby stereo. Yeah, nice. The right stuff. Was it the right stuff the first time we went there? That's the first time I remember being yeah. there. We saw the pa- Passage to Passage India. Passage to India. Uh, we saw some Woody Allen films there. We yeah. Because the there were two one. other smaller this, theaters. This yeah. poster has all the stars in those squares at the bottom of it. This must have been one oh, of the yeah. earlier. I don't know when you they know started it's going to be that. good when they have that. Probably around then. Yeah, yeah I think I know Towering Inferno very has the has a lot but this is first mm. maybe, yeah maybe airport and airport 75 mm. uh, maybe poseidon adventure 2 has the boxes but that that was a way to recognize if a film was a disaster movie or not right. so the actors uh, and, in, and larger... in fact if i remember right the the delta force in 1986 oh, 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 oh. did it when uh canon picked up that old process again they should bring that back now i'd like to see a yeah poster. We, you should do it for, we should do a new poster for like, we need to do something. That'd be great to have all your, <laughs> yeah. but there's only going to be five boxes. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Five boxes or the, the, in the, each the one snake. of those boxes could be on top of like a toilet seat. That would be. It's true. The snake could be in a box. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, the so, he, okay. The, 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 tongue, the act, yeah. the cast the members book. who are in larger letters are Heston, Gardner, Kennedy, Lauren Green, Jean-Via Bujol, and Richard Roundtree. Co-starring in smaller letters, Marjorie Gortner, Barry Sullivan, Lloyd Nolan, and Victoria Principal. The character actors. Character actors. Yeah. Written. And none of them ever, yeah, really kind of rose above that status, except that maybe Victoria Principal after she got on Dallas. Right. Right. Uh, Lloyd Nolan. Richard Roundtree. This is about the height of his fame, too. Who? Few years, Richard Roundtree, oh, a few years after Shaft, yeah. he's still riding high yeah, yeah. on that. Lloyd Nolan plays Woody Allen's father in some movie, doesn't he? No, well, he plays Mia uh, Farrow's father. He plays Mia oh, Farrow's right. father or stepfather right, right. in Hannah and her right, sisters. Right. That's what I'm thinking. This is his, last, his last film. Right. Wait, where he doesn't look that much older than he does in Earthquake. No. Uh, no. That's almost like, what, 12 years later? Yeah. He's, Lloyd Nolan is great. Always a character actor. Uh, there was a B series of movies, I think, where he plays a reporter in the 50s. I think they're Fox, from the 40s. I think they're Fox films. Michael Shane, I think, is the name of the... And he did a bunch of those. That's probably as close as he came to being a leading man. But yeah. I'm, a, I'm, I'm a huge fan of him in um, Interns Can't Take Money, which is the <laughs> first uh, first Dr. Kildare film with... Uh, uh, Joel McRae and Barbara Stanwyck, mm. which is... One of the best films of the late 30s. Just a really, really great movie. He's in airport as well. He's got an interesting... Oh, yeah. He's got maybe one of the more interesting little moments in Earthquake where um, Lauren Green dies and uh, one of his assistants says, oh, should we go tell Ava Gardner or even the secretary that he's dead? And he's like, nah, fuck it. Hide them. Hide the body for a while. They'll, they'll yeah, he does, a, he does a... <laughs> He does a Governor Cuomo. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and then when when Ava Gardner comes up, he's like, oh, leave me alone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah he's like, don't bother me now, kid. You yeah, I don't deal with this shit. I got enough, to, I got enough aggravation. <laughs> okay, here's another movie I have not seen, and but just looks great. But what scares me is it was co-written by Frank D. Felita, who I think wrote Audrey Rose, both the novel and perhaps the screenplay, mm. and that oh, scares boy. me off. <laughs> uh, George C. Scott 
Trish Vanderveer, which I guess shouldn't come as a surprise. Oh, is that the Savage is Loose? Savage is Loose. Yeah, which George C. Scott, I think, paid for the release of that film. I think he, he couldn't get a studio to pick it up, and he ended up, because he directed it, yeah. right? And he ended up he ended up sinking his own money into a release of the film. And I, I think there's a, there's an ad that ran in some newspapers that's like a letter from George C. Scott. Well, you know, have, t- have you t- seen t- the movie? People, no, I've never seen it. I, I wish I had, there was a print at Eastman House that I wish I had watched, but... Uh, mm-hmm. when I was working there. But um, apparently it it, uh, <laughs> it deals with incest. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's like two two people on an island and they their kid is uh, Lee H. Montgomery. And I don't know what, I don't know them, but I think at some point something goes on between the kid hey, and the mother. Hey. John David Carson is also in it, so there's a fourth. And they couldn't get oh. that released, huh? Written by Max <laughs> Ehrlich and Frank DiFolita. Hmm. Um. The, there's only one review in the ad, and it's from Rex Reed, who says, Powerful, challenging, and provocative. My hat is off to George C. Scott. Yeah. Well, and then, thank you, sir. And then there's a, there's a what looks like a pull quote, but then I realize, no, this isn't attributed to anyone. This is just the tagline for the movie. Only a handful of pictures have truly blazed new paths. The Savage is Loose is one of them. Hmm. Yeah. Well. And then... At the very bottom of the ad, underneath all the theater listings, there's a box that says, it is important that this film be seen from the beginning. Okay. It's like when people regularly would go see movies in the middle and then stay for the beginning. No, that was still going on. Even in 74, unbelievable. The end of 74. I mean, that was going on when I was a kid. We would go see movies like that. Yeah. Um. In me, I'm seeing an ad, uh, not an ad, but a listing for music, uh, music happening that weekend in New York. And there was a, at Avery Fisher Hall, uh, at 8 and 11 p.m. Wow. I didn't know Avery Fisher Hall was open that late. A concert, uh, Billy Joel and Janice Ian. And I bet you Janice Mm. Ian was the headliner at that, uh. Show. Oh yeah, that, Billy that Joel. Sense, it's not yeah. it's late '70s before. Uh, yeah, isn't just the way you are was his first giant hit. Yeah. That's like '77, '78. Mm-hmm. Um, he somehow had like probably like kind of indie cred with his lower yeah. set piano man and stuff like that. But and that was already out at that point. I think so. Yeah. So at the at the United Artists Theater, Columbia One and Columbia Two. So I think those theaters were both in the same building. Second Avenue and 64th Street. They were both going to be showing. Oh, but starting Sunday, November 17th, which is an interesting day of the week for movies to start. Uh, John Cassavetes, A Woman Under the Influence. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Oh, he was paying for those releases too. Uh, he was, yeah. He had his own, just, but it, but it paid off. He made a lot of money on yeah. that movie, and he sunk it all into Killing of a Chinese Bookie and Opening Night, and they both he lost all the money he made off that film. But thank God he had, he had later on he had his Incubus money to work from. Yeah, <laughs> Incubus, the Incubus, and all that sperm, <laughs> red sperm, a tremendous amount of sperm. <laughs> Uh, scenes from a marriage was at the Beekman and the Paramount, mm-hmm. which Vincent Canby said was a superb film, which is almost unbearably moving. And, and in Manhattan, I know that. Well, actually, I think dubbed dubbed versions of Bergman films were rare. I know, I know, Corman did one for uh, uh, Cries and Whispers, but 
but in Manhattan, you go either of those theaters are going to be showing it in Swedish with subtitles, right? They're not. You're not going to. I would think so. You're not going to see a dubbed no, version. I don't think so. No. Uh, has anybody watched the uh, remake of that? That uh, no. Nah. I saw the television version of the Bergman one. I mean, which I don't the, the, think the that fe- was the the, the the miniseries. Yeah, which yeah. wasn't the theatrical version. No, the, it's, right. like this, it's it's like a difference between like six and two and a half hours. But I have not seen that the HBO one. Four and but are you saying it's it's an expanded version of the two hour? It's like the same actors and the same. Well, it, w- it was made for made television. Made yeah, it's a, it's a it's a TV miniseries that's four or five hours long, and the theatrical version is like two and a half hours. Same thing with Fanny. And Fanny and Alexander was the same thing. Yeah. I've only seen the I've only seen the long versions of both of them. Mm-hmm. Same. Oh, and I and they're probably my two favorite yeah. things. Those two and but definitely Fanning's Alexander is. Well, that's interesting, best. Jim, because yeah. normally you go for you know a standard movie. I would think that you'd be more interested in the two-hour versions. Yeah, no, and I've never seen the theatrical versions of either of them. Uh, and then I, you know, I'm not a huge Bergman guy, but I really like both of those, especially Fanny and Alexander, and uh, and I like the Virgin Spring quite a bit. Yeah, that one's great. And I like Monica, Summer with Monica. Um, but I think Seventh Seal is boring. <laughs> Here's a movie I don't think I've ever heard of. Judith Chris says a special film for those who want intelligence and wit with their love story, and an adult love story at that. A touch of class. A woman, here's the tagline, a woman with a profane love for a man of God. Oh. I can give you the leads if you want. The Thornbirds? Change of habit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Peter Finch and Liv Ullman. Oh, the abdication. Nice. I've never seen it either, but... Anybody know who the director is? Because it's not on this ad. No. Uh, I wonder if it was like a European, uh, but it's, yeah, it's like, it's like a period piece, right? It's like a medieval thing or. Yeah, it looks like it might be. Oh, who knows? Liv Ullman was busy in 74 scenes from marriage and Zandy's Bride came out that year too. Uh, the application is directed by Anthony Harvey. Anthony Harvey, who directed The Lion in Winter. Mm-hmm. He's an editor for, uh. Stanley Kubrick on uh, at Doctor Strangelove and uh, Lolita at the Playboy Theater. Uh, a film. I didn't know there was a Playboy Theater in New York. I thought it was just Chicago. Well, I don't know how long it lasted. Anthony Harvey directed Grace Quigley with Catherine Hepburn and Nick Nolte. Oh God! Is Kip Niven in that? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Is that Hepburn's last movie? No. Ch- no. Chip Zian is in. Chip Zian. Kip Niven, Chip Zian. Chip Zian was uh, Howard the Duck. But is right. it is it a romance between Nick Nolte and Catherine Hepburn? No, no. He's like a he's a hitman, and she hires him to kill her, and then they end up going around killing old people or something like that. I don't. know. I've never seen it. I've not either. Sounds great the way you describe it. At the Playboy Theater, a Claude Chabrol movie that I've never heard of. The blah, blah, blah. Is that it? <laughs> 70, 74. Yeah. I don't know. what. Uh, you want to hear some reviews or pull quotes? Nah, just tell me. The Nada Gang. No, I don't know that one at all. Starring oh, Fa- Fabrio Testi. Oh, oh, wow. He was a really prolific director, Chabrol. Yeah. He, he made a 
you know, at least a movie a year for. Well, I'll tell you, <laughs> for some reason, among the pull quotes, they have one from Parents Magazine, which says violence, <laughs> nudity, sex, cursing. Very good for adults. <laughs> All right. And that same woman from the New York Times who reviewed Earthquake reviewed it and said it's an elegant blast at corrupt authority. And uh, the New York watch it in a second. The New York Post said an exciting movie comparable to the work of Fuller and Peckinpah, a picture you'll you'll attend breathlessly every inch of the way. Mm. Here you go. Bet Chabrol liked that. Chabrol was a big admirer of Fuller, and in fact, in Sam Fuller's one of his very last films, he made two or three films in France after White Dog. He, uh, he made a movie with Claude Chabrol in the cast. Um, I forget the name of that one, but it's like 1986 or 87. Here's an exciting ad for a movie that was playing all over the place. And I'm really, I didn't see this on its initial run because it actually was rated R, but it's exciting to me to see that it was playing at all my theaters, the Kingsway, Kings Plaza, South, the Alpine. This poster has got a great tagline, which I think was just a sort of a limited run thing. It says now stops at all red carpet theaters. Take it. With an exclamation point. That's the name of the movie? Nope. But the, but uh, it's a riff on That's the a... name of the movie. Take oh. it. Hit. Now stops at all red carpet theaters. Take it. Oh, the Taking a Pelham. Oh, Taking a Pelham. Yep. One, two, three, oh, baby. What a great movie. Yeah. What a great movie. Mm-hmm. Can you, I mean, I just, nothing, nothing, there are a few things that I think are cooler than just picturing that movie on its initial release. Like especially in the New York area, yeah, in New York, yeah. First run, you don't know what you're going to see, and you see that thing. No, no, it's just it's such a funny movie too. Just so much, so much humor, and but just a great story and the movie that never never lets up. It's like a hundred minute wonder. How about the The movie whose value is appreciated more every year? It seems what by a wider audience. Yeah, nobody. Nobody, uh, none of whom seem to remember the remake, or the remakes, I should say. No, nor should they. Are there three remakes, or just two? two? I've, I, I haven't seen the TV movie remake. No, I haven't either. Can you imagine? Seen... I can't imagine. Yeah, it's Edward James almost in the Mathau role. Hmm. And I think uh, Vincent D'Onofrio in the Robert Shaw role. What what year was it? 1998. Wow. 98. When when did D'Onofrio start acting? I don't know. The first time I saw him was in Full Metal Jacket. I think that's his first movie. But And what year is so that? 87. Oh, okay. Uh, the finest comedy of its kind since Sleeper. Stylish, sophisticated, and finely crafted, says Judith Christ of New York Magazine. Boy, I would never guess this movie from that pull quote. <laughs> Is it a futuristic comedy? No. Well, no. Uh, I don't think so. I mean, you might tell me I'm wrong about that. I don't think it's supposed to be futuristic. No, I don't know. Phantom of the Paradise. Oh, wow. Weird. That's comedy since Sleeper. Hmm. Crazy costumes, I guess. Right, but not futuristic, right? No. Did she say it's futuristic? No. No, she just said it's the best comedy of its kind since Sleeper. Oh. 
I don't think of that movie anything like Sleepy Hollow. No, I don't think that those two movies have anything in common. Do they? Everyone was high, as Mike McPadden (laughs) used to say. Uh, (laughs) At Radio City Music Hall was a movie that I saw at Radio City Music Hall. Uh, A story I was a big fan of, not only from the book. Matilda. Yes. But from um, um, an uh, an extremely off-Broadway production that ran forever at some weird Lower East Side or Village sort of avant-garde theater that I remember my huh. grandparents, I think, and my parents took me to more than once, and I just loved, it was like an immersive stage production. But then it finally made it to the big screen, and I remember thinking this was all right, but I tried to watch it not too long ago, and I was like, oh, never mind. Uh, a Stanley the, Dunn the, the, the Little the Prince. Prince. Hmm. I saw that as a kid a bunch of times, and I liked it, but I haven't seen it since. Yeah, I thought it was okay. I haven't seen it Bob Fosse. Bob Fosse is the snake. Yeah, ugh, that yeah. Uh, Gene Wilder and 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 this and maybe maybe this is the beginning of the what goes wrong with Gene Wilder that the the kind of extra sappiness. Mm. Like, is he is he really sappy in anything before that? Like, he starts you to feel it a little bit in Silver Streak, which is a movie I like, and then and then he's cool for a few years, and then by the eighties, he's just. You know, the just there's something puppy dogish about him that's revolting. <laughs> Over at the Baronet, uh, the uh, with a pull quote that says, "The last tango in Paris is a light-hearted romp compared to this film." Salo. Ah, I wish the Night Porter. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, big cult pretty, movie. That's rough. I saw that a few yeah, years ago. Not a fan. No. Uh, okay, here's a great double feature. I'm going to tell you about two double features. One of them is very bizarre to me, but of course, you know, they always do weird things. But this one, this is this is a delightful double feature. Back to back, bumper to bumper, chase to chase. Decide for yourself which one is the most exciting. Second week at a flagship theater near you was this double feature. Gumball Rally? Freebie and the Bean. Uh, no, it's 20th Century Fox. Race with the Devil? No. 1974. Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry? Were, were these movies out in 74? No, they're all... Oh, Race with the Devil, 75, yeah. Uh, okay, so... Well, I'll tell you one of them. And then you tell Vanishing me Point? You, no. No. Uh, okay. uh, French Connection and... Okay. French Connection 2. Seven Ups? Seven Ups. Thank you. Seven Ups. Matt. So maybe it's before French Connection Two came out, and so it's like kind of like a could be ramp up to that. Yeah, maybe because that's seventy five, isn't it? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now playing uh, in Brooklyn, but sort of like in all the sort of more ghettoy neighborhoods, the greatest Bruce Lee hit of them all. Enter the Dragon. Enter the Dragon. Yeah, that was a movie that came out in like late summer seventy three, and you could see it basically for the rest of the decade and probably even into the early 80s. There's probably always some theater in every major city that was playing it. Here's a movie I never have heard of, but I think maybe one of you mentioned it earlier on in the podcast, but I could be totally hallucinating. Uh, The tagline is, they began as strangers with nothing to share but a lifetime. Oh, I know what that is. That sounds familiar. Yeah, I know that tagline. Scarecrow? Nope. Uh, co-starring, 
Eileen Heckert, who I don't know from A Hole in the Wall. Is that the movie that... And is it Butterflies Are Free? No. Susan Tyrell. Huh. Wow. Directed by Jan Troll. Troll. Oh, it's is it Zandy's Bride? Zandy's Bride. Did you mention yeah. that earlier tonight? Yeah, I was yeah. saying it was a <laughs> bit busy time. So Liv Ullman has three movies playing at this time. But, you know, the she's abdication. not even in this poster. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It's Gene I'm so Hackman sorry. and Liv yes, Ullman. Right. I, I hadn't scrolled up enough there at the top of the end. <laughs> Gene Hackman and Liv Ullman. Thanks. Uh, it is. It is not a fun movie. I I, re- I really like uh, Jan Trell's first several film Swedish films, including The New Land and The Emperor. Oh, that's that person. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, and I just saw Here Is Your Life, which is his first feature, which is very good. And um, and yeah, and he got he 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 did a couple movies in Hollywood. He did Zandy's Bride, which is a western, which you know I was really excited to watch mm-hmm. and. But Gene Hackman is really a, just a miserable character in that film. He's like really unpleasant. And uh, and then I think he went back to Europe and did some movies. And then uh, Dino De Laurentiis hired him to do that 1979 remake of The Hurricane, which I've never seen, uh, with Mia Farrow. That was a big, big, colossal flop. Um, but I'd, I'd like to see it. Mm. I suppose that qualifies as a disaster movie, although I don't think it had the the all-star cast. Right. Here's a movie playing at the Nostrand and the Oasis and the Seaview, which were all legit theaters, but this is advertising a rated X version of this movie. I know there was... I thought Mike and I talked at some point about there being an R-rated cut, but they're not advertising the R-rated cut, but it's so strange to me that this was showing at these these neighborhood theaters. Uh, Flesh Gordon... Hmm. Never saw it. I've saw it. It's got some nice stop motion animation. Yeah. That's all I remember about it. I remember some issue of Playboy that me and my friends had come across. I think the, the, what's the name of the director? Bill Osco. I, oh, well, maybe this is a different guy. There's a guy that befriended me on Facebook. It's it's like so and so Flesh Gordon. Hmm. So I thought it was like the director of Flesh Gordon or something. I think I'm right. I think it's Bill Osco, isn't it? It doesn't say in the ad. Yeah. Um, that was another movie that, you know, just I think because of the title, you could you could see it for the next ten years. It was always playing somewhere, yeah. drive-ins. And- yeah, yeah. Howard Flesh Gordon Zeem. Oh, maybe Howard Zeem's the director. I don't know. Uh, here's a family matinee playing all over of a movie I don't believe I've ever heard of. Uh... And I don't even know how to tease it to you. Paramount Pictures presents The Wishing Machine. Never heard of it. What is what is that? I don't know. It says, nothing you wish is impossible. Your imagination and the wishing machine can make any dream come true. That's some messed up kids movie. It also says out. it's alive and in color. <laughs> I don't know. Flash Gordon was directed by Michael Benveniste and Howard Zeem. And your Facebook friends with the director of Flesh Gordon, the co-director? Yeah. Unbelievable. I never, never saw it. And Bill Osco and Howard Zeem produced it. Okay. Oh, Bill Osco. Um, is, are you looking up Wishing Machine? No, oh, okay. but I'm wondering if it isn't one of these, like, maybe European. Sure. Could be. And Howard Zeem directed the Flesh Gordon sequel. Flesh Gordon and the Cosmic Cheer meets the Cosmic Cheerleaders. There you go. 
from 1990. Oh, at Lowe's Astor Plaza, Charles Bronson in Death Wish. That was, yeah, 74, right? That's a big movie. Uh, that would have been yeah. nice. That would have been a fun movie to see at the Astor Plaza. That was my favorite theater in New York, the Astor Plaza. Nothing shows up for Wishing Machine on IMDb, wow. so it must be under a different title. Lots of washing machines, but nothing from 73, 74. The washing machine. It's a Paramount family matinee. Wow, I wonder what that is. I wonder, like, if it's a retitled. But it's weird you're not even coming up with it as a... No, there's nothing, you know, sometimes IMDb automatically directs you to the movie's alternate title, but... Uh, Airport 75. Uh, Vernon Scott of UPI says, if you like Poseidon Adventure and Airport, you'll go bananas for Airport 1975. (laughs) Scott, both. The tagline is, something hit us. The crew is dead. Help us. Please. Please help us. The stewardess is flying the plane. <laughs> and it's got the squares of, of actors in that one. Uh, the Trial of Billy Jack was playing all over the place. Uh, <laughs> and it had the amazing tagline. Are you ready for this? The Trial of Billy yes. Jack. It takes up where Billy Jack left off. <laughs> That's telling them. Really? <laughs> yeah, can you believe it? Really? <laughs> it's not a prequel, everybody. <laughs> uh, the Longest Yard was all over the place. Yeah. And I think that's about it. That's that's what was playing in New York City that week. All, Good time to go to the movies. You could also go to see Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band on the Road, live on stage. How was that? That's what inspired that's the Beatles movie. Beatles tribute band. That was a uh, oh, Robert right. Stigwood production. Ah, okay. So was it? Did it have like the same script with like characters playing Mister Mustard and shit like that? I don't know. I don't know, but I bet it did. Like a George Burns. I mean, once narrator. you've written a story like that, why would you ever want to change it? <laughs> don't don't divert. Why fix perfect? The Beatles. Universe. Although. I do remember, because we did Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band after Mike died mm-hmm. on Crackpot. And I remember reading about some Stigwood, I guess, somebody hiring somebody who'd never written anything before to, to come up with the screenplay. So maybe it was different than the, uh, than the stage sure. show. That's what you want to trust to a novice. It says it's but a, Stigwood produced this stage, this On the Road I show. I think so. I believe, because I just watched the... Uh, HBO Max documentary about Stigwood. Ah. And he uh, oh, right. he was involved with the Beatles in some way in the uh, he he Mr. he started Saturday out night. as um what's his name? Brian Epstein's assistant. Oh, okay. And then uh there was a split after Epstein died and he wound up with the rights somehow to some huh. Beatles related content, which is why there is a Sgt. Pepper's movie and blah blah blah. Right. Those are good movies. Those no documentaries on HBO. The uh, I haven't seen any. I heard the like the, the, Kenny G uh, the music box thing. The Kenny There's G the Kenny one G is one fantastic. I heard is good. Yeah, Alanis Morissette one is good. Uh, Alanis Morissette. DMX, Woodstock '99, and Stigwood. I started to watch that one. I I just got tired, but I'd like to finish it. The Woodstock one. Yeah, Stigwood's maybe the least interesting one, but it's still pretty good. All right, gents. Well, this was a good time to go to the movies. I'll tell you what. Yeah. I'd like to go back there and hop around. Yep. 
Yeah. I would love if I if I could I don't know if I'd want to commit to this being my own, but if you know, one if I could do some time traveling trips, I would definitely love to go back to New York, maybe get to go see Pelham on opening night in the city. Yeah. Of course all the theaters smell like cigarettes, so yeah, great. <laughs> go back, see some movies, and you know, bet on some uh, sporting events that you know yeah. the results to. Change the future. Yeah, good idea. <laughs> Biff. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining Thanks, me on this Thanks, holiday ben. edition of uh, 70 Movies We Saw in the 70s. Have a nice holiday, everybody. Happy holidays. Happy holidays, everybody. Earthquake! <laughs>